0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fantasy Fangirls Podcast, where two sisters
1: dive deep into beloved fantasy lore, characters, themes, series, and More Today, before we dive into chapters 21 through 25 of Fourth Wing, as usual, our content warning. We, a fantasy fangirls, are adults who say adult things about an adult book. Now look, Zayden and Violet have a scene together, and I have multiple
0: pages of notes about this, and this is not going to be a PG episode, friends.
1: We also, of course, talk spoilers. Everything from the entire Fourth Wing book, the Iron Flame excerpt and speculations, and of course, anything else from Rebecca Yarros is on the table. So if you don't know why breaking into Lilith Sorengale's office gives us so
0: many clues that just completely go over our heads first read, then stop this podcast right now, go read the book, and we will be here when you come back. And now it is time for dragon sex. I mean, it's time for channeling. (laughs) and one more thing
1: fantasy fangirls is now on patreon yes you'll get more content from us and get more out of this community plus this kind of support is the absolute best way to help us of fantasy fangirls keep giving back to you our incredible community
0: there are two tier options that you can join at and the content includes things like a discord monthly live Q&A's discounted merch our outlines yes the 30 to 45 pages ones
1: early access to episodes and more we understand that everyone might not be in. position to support us in this way and that's totally fine but if you are and you enjoy this content you want more of it and you want to support nicole myself and our growing team we would so 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 appreciate you joining our patreon the link to learn more about our patreon is in the show notes
0: now back to the episode
1: Before we dive into the stretch of chapters, let us begin with our battle brief, aka Nicole's summary of what happens in chapters 21 through 25. Yes, we were originally going to cover chapter 26 in today's episode, but decided it'll just be best for everybody for it to be moved to episode six. So stay tuned. We want to cover Montserrat in one
0: whole stretch of chapters, and also we want to make sure this isn't a 20-hour long podcast. Chapter 21, Violet and her new bodyguard, Liam, are on library duty, and Violet questions Liam about being a marked one. But record scratch, there are some major incongruencies from what she learned when training to be a scribe. Like there were people who were killed that she was not aware of. Siblings were split up and then fostered. And marked ones are all required to go into the writer's quadrant. What? Violet's mind is blown. But as they walk back from the archives, a scroll meant for Professor Markham falls off the cart and A-O! A new mystery has entered our story. A high altitude village was ransacked and supplies looted. What could that mean? Later on in Battle Brief, as our favorite rambunctious first years and second squad are joking around about Violet's sexual frustrations, the professors start class by saying how activity has been so quiet. So we're going to analyze this really important battle from 600 years ago. A very Confused Violet and Liam exchange a look. Was that scroll marked classified? Was it? Chapter 22, Montage Number One. A few months have passed and still nothing about Professor Markham's mysterious scroll. The squad has fallen into a rhythm classes, flying lessons, channeling lessons for some of them, and now Tuesday night sparring practice. A shirtless Zayden and Garrick walk in and begin their own sparring sessions, getting every attention from every person in the room and for our girls violet and imogen though they are entirely enjoying this view for sexual reasons and i won't even pretend that we are not right there with them but jack fucking barlow contends his streak of being a total dickwad and zayden comes to stand notably behind violet to egg him off now jack is forced out by liam garrick zayden violet and kind of imogen but as zayden turns to walk away after the mayhem violet notices his back is covered in way 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 many scars taryn and indarna share a moment in violet's mind that is something like a parent teacher conference she's ready apparently later that night a strange surge of power ripples through violet after a huge wave makes her collapse to the floor something new comes in. The horniness of a 15-year-old boy has entered Violet Sorengale. After almost leaping on top of a confused Liam, Violet gets outside to cool her aching need that is only being caused by Taryn and Seagale going at it like bunnies in springtime. Who's there but Zayden, beautiful man Ryerson, and he's smoking weed, of course. And welcome to the middle of the night sessions that make Nicole go weak at the knees, part three. Zayden teaches Violet how to shield out Taryn's escapades, and turns out she's really, really good at shielding. Go, Violet! And then the charged crackle between them overcomes them both, and finally, our enemies to lovers make out. And yes, I will be talking about that for forty-five thousand minutes. Thank you. But then, after a crack of thunder, weird, and realizing that this lust is not entirely of their own making, debatable, but whatever, Zayden breaks the kiss and begs her to leave. Violet walks back to the room with a solid, what the fuck just happened? We've all been there. Chapter 23. The next morning we get a classic powwow sesh after speculating about what will happen with Zayden and Violet after graduation. Ree shows Violet her signet power. ASIO book! Our girl is a summoner! On their way to class, Dane quarters Violet and apologizes, or quotes on that one, for not asking for the memory. This is after him accusing her of not sharing the information with him about amber and right before he cups her face again but whatever dude then violet goes off to professor carr's wielding class and this guy is terrifying he also takes a leaf out of olivander's book and says well expect great things from you violet soren but then it's time for montage number two it's now january and she's been working on her lesser magic our girl finally gets a pen shielding and grounding she also wins two sparring fights without poisoning her opponents our girl is Fucking killing it. But then one day she checks the leaderboard and learns that she's going to fight Jack fucking Barlow. As she fights him, Jack is doing everything he can to try to kill her, including transferring his own magic into her. Yes, we will be talking about that. But our smart cookie has a vial of oranges and then she slams it into his face. Jack loses the battle, but Violet also passes out. She wakes up in the healer's quadrant and who's there but a hair-tossled, distressed-looking Zayden Ryerson, who has only one word for Violet. Oranges? Chapter 24, Zayden kind of sort of, yeah, gives Violet a good job when it comes to using oranges as a weapon against Jack. But his warmth, if you can even call it that, stops there. After brushing off their kiss like it was absolutely nothing and admitting that he was trying to stay away from her, which was a mistake, Shadow Daddy Zayden takes over everything when it comes to Violet and her training and Nicole does a fist pump in the air! On the sparring mat the next day, Zayden has a gift for Violet. 12 tierish daggers made specifically for her and Zayden tells her that she needs to disarm him and boy oh boy does she in a sexually charged moment that has a fandom panting for this enemies to lovers combo. Montage number three! Zayden has been training Violet for about a month now, much to shit-stained Dane's dismay. But Violet still hasn't produced a signet and her time is ticking like a bomb that's ready to go off, literally. Zayden I'm taking over everything when it comes to you Ryerson, whisks Violet away from class again to go flying. But on their way up to the flight field, who do we run into except dad of shit Stain Dane and mother of the year Lilith Sorengale. We get a heavily with meaning conversation between these four and I guess Pancheck he's there too, so five. Then Violet and Zayden meet up with their three dragons and they begin their flight for the day. Not without some delightful been married way too many Years' energy from Taren and Seagale. Chapter 25. It's squad battle time, and after Liam eviscerated everyone on the mat, our squad learns that their final task is simple find something that the enemies would find useful seems pretty legit our favorite second squad breaks off and puts their heads together and of course brilliant-minded violet comes up with the idea we're gonna break into lilith soaringale's office what could go wrong using everyone in their squad's unique signet they sneak into the office and find some notable material in there first a dagger that looks oh so similar to violet's and then some missives that are troubling but then violet looks at the giant map behind her mother's desk with an up-to-date war map and yep that's of course the thing they steal a giant map after some trouble with a guard that they knock out and stuff into an office woof, they arrive back into the battle brief room with seconds to spare they present their findings and just like gryffindor house at the end of every year our squad is awarded 60 points and shoots up to first place
1: Oh, man, Nicole, that was good. Let's tap into our signet power and start going into key insights, reflections, foreshadowing, and, of course, theories. Let's open it up with archives with Liam. Like, first of all, let's talk about the fact that he is signing and flirting with Jasenia.
0: My heart. My heart cannot take that scene.
1: Here's a little tidbit. Like, as Liam, you know, he's scanning the archives as if someone is going to come out and kill Violet. You know, she finds it ludicrous. But what if this is a further hint that the scribes are indeed dangerous for her? I just found that, like, he's looking for someone who's going to kill her in the scribes. I think that there might be some mirroring deeper meaning there because, you know, I, I personally firmly believe she was pulled out of the path to scribehood by her mom as a way to protect her from the same fate her dad met when he found the info or that she just really didn't want her to find out the info because she was going to get killed the same way as yeah. her dad.
0: I definitely agree that there there is something Lilith... Lilith knows that her dad's death was, A, a super n- non-accident. That was not a coincidence. And we, especially later, we get that download from Shitstain Dane's dad that he, meaning Violet's dad, was doing research on feather tails. Like, her dad was doing research on things that people were not supposed to be researching or were not supposed to be finding out as much and... We're not sharing with the class, basically. And I think that there's so much here that Violet does not know. i I love that line. I didn't notice that. That was so good. I will say so mm-hmm. after Justciia goes off and, like, you know, is gathering their books, Liam and Violet have this conversation, which is so. Huge. Because it shows that it's really her starting to, and I think it's unknowingly here, question the system. So after Liam says, where do you think the kids of the traitors went after they executed our parents? Violet says, and she's meanwhile wondering, like, oh, I wonder if any texts in the archives will hold the answer. She says, I didn't think. So she didn't think about it. And I love it because it even says like her breath catches on that last word, think. She didn't think because she was just like divulging into this information and taking it as gospel.
1: And like, you know, we know she was so caught up in her grief after her brother's death and she didn't empathize or, or really think about these marked ones. And, you know, neither fostering or separation of children were mentioned in the text. She's read about the rebellion and, you know, quote, she's read a ton and now her perspective—it's widening because so many innocents on the other side were negatively impacted, and she's she's getting to know people from this other side, like Liam, like Zayden, and all of them, and really sympathizing with them and learning more about the hardships that they went through.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, also, like, we also like—we cannot look over the fact that when she was doing a lot of the reading on the rebellion she was looking at it through a very unique lens yes violet is incredibly smart yes she has read a lot about the rebellion obviously there have been some classified things that we'll talk about in a minute with this but she's read everything there is in the archives that is available to everyone about the rebellion however she was looking through this through a lens of these guys are bad they killed my brother they started this war that, you know, led to my father dying. Like, I mean, it hurt his health, quote unquote, but of course, she's going to absorb this information through the lens of we are the good guys. They are the bad guys. So it makes a lot of sense that she didn't think about how it would impact them. She didn't think about what would happen to these kids. She just saw them, you know, their parents died and great. Now what's happening on my side? So it's it's cool kind of her being able to like now live in the gray area. Obviously, she does end up going straight to the other side towards the later end of the book. But it's cool seeing her in this gray area where she gets to finally question
1: the mind games that she's been learning her entire life well and then even on later on when she and Zayden run into Dane's dad and her mom there's a line something like how she doesn't look at Zayden because she doesn't want to give her allegiance away to either them or herself you know that's a great way of putting it she's in the gray right now and again part of that hero's journey to going and evolving to see the light I do have to point out a little mini Violet taking an L like This girl tells Liam that his dad wasn't killed. Like, she is trying to correct him. It's like, I think Liam would know if his dad was executed. And it's like, no wonder Liam's a little over that conversation at that point. I was like, ooh. Wrong thing to say there, Violet. Not cool. But not cool.
0: It just it just truly shows that like what she she read the death roll for the rebellion and for everyone who was killed and executed for the rebellion. And so when she hears something that goes against it, she's like, no, absolutely not. It's her gut instinct because again, that's yep. what she was taught her entire life. So yes, I
1: agree with you. Not cool. I was I was like in the grocery store when I was re-listening to that, and I was like, Violet, no, not don't say that. And, and you know, again, just we got to pull out this one line. A lot of these treaty and data were classified. I think we mentioned that in a previous episode, too. And like, that's why Violet, she didn't know that they were all forced into the writer's quadrant. There's so much information that is classified, that is hidden. There are a lot of secrets. And we're starting to really learn just how much is shielded from the general society and even the military who are really involved in this. We're going to talk so much more about that in today's episode.
0: Well, and I I do think it's notable, like, yes, it it was classified for her. But I find it interesting that it's one of the chapter openings that is a classified poll, right I think I'm not mistaken here like one of the chapter openings mentions how it is all of yeah the, yeah
1: is an agenda yep
0: that to me shows that Jesenia is wanting to finally take those classified things and shove them in people's faces because if she's our author of the story oh I didn't think about it like that I just thought about that I want to uh, let's keep an eye out for that I want to that's that's yeah. my headcanon right now okay so we need to talk about this youngin six-year-old Julianne hey do you think we're ever going to meet her
1: She's six I, I wondered that too and I'm gonna say no the story is not really one that fits a six-year-old I think she's there to really establish like the cruelty that was bestowed upon the mark ones and we also yeah. know that she is being fostered somewhere so she's not like in bestgath right and she won't be for a very very long time so I don't think we're gonna see her. I kind of hope not for her sake. But I do have a question about her. So her mom was pregnant with her when she got the relic. And that means that her mom had to be alive in order to birth her. So how was her mom not killed as part of the executions if her mom was part of the rebellion? I have a really dark answer to this question. And that is, I think that she was
0: kept alive to give birth to this child so that she would have a rebellion relic and then she was executed. I'm so sorry. That, That is dark. I know, I'm so sorry. That I would think dark. that they
1: would just. I don't feel like. I, I. don't even know if I want to go down this route of this conversation. But they killed everyone else. Like, why would it be different? But they also wanted to kill the kids. They made a deal with Zayden. So I don't think that killing a child. What if that was part of Zayden's deal? Because it would have been
0: 106. But he was like, "I am taking 107 for the for the girl in the womb." It's a, it's a, that's a dark question. That's yep, a all right. dark question. That's I'm a so dark sorry. question.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. I, I don't know if this is a much lighter question, but I do have another one here. So we we know that both of Liam's parents were killed, but how did that work with his mom being part of the rebellion leadership and notably not his dad? Was his mom a dragon rider and therefore the more politically powerful of the two? Like, I don't think that they were divorced. I, I really don't get that. It didn't give off that energy error. on it. So so there's a question. And then my second follow-up question that, is how did Liam get from his mother's execution to his father's? Kaldik must have been very close to Liam's home in the Tirandor Providence if he could get there just within a day.
0: I do wonder if his dad was also a writer. That's a really good question. We know that his mom was a colonel but I don't know. I am curious but like if she was part of the rebellion, did they just kill everyone's spouses who was also? Which they oh, must have, right? Because his dad wasn't well, a leadership. He wasn't leadership in the rebellion. Who right. Knows?
1: He wasn't killed at the executions with all the other re- rebellion leaders and so Violet just automatically thought that anybody who was not on that death roll wasn't killed and she just found out that's not the case and that just opened opened up a lot of really dark possibilities. She thought all these children just went to go live with their other parents and it's like, uh, no, all the parents were killed and they were sent to foster. And she's like, what? Well, so at the end of the book when we get Zayden's POV, you know, he's thinking about
0: his dad and then he thinks about his mom and then there's a dot, 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 we're not gonna go there. There's a lot of questions. I'm actually, I'm gonna hold a lot of my theorizing on that front for that episode because there's so many things that we can think about there. But I do wonder, was his mom in the rebellion as well I'm assuming like you know Fen was leading it so she I'm assuming she must have been a part of it at some level but if he also is like a dot 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 we're not going to go there maybe she was pissed off at Fen for being reckless and uh, reckless quote unquote and you know putting their family in danger and so she maybe they were a split up or a divorced Set like I don't know. Well,
1: and, and again, I don't want to go here quite yet. We're not quite ready to go into this theory. But the Zayden is not actually Finn Ryerson's son, and he's actually royalty theory. There is that whole whole thing too. I, put a pin in it right now. But yeah, we'll put a pin in that. I I
0: need to do more research on that theory because I'm not convinced on that front yet. I'm
1: I'm not. I, I think it's a really fun theory, but I definitely think that Finn Ryerson is his dad. But okay, yeah. more questions from this conversation. This episode is full of a lot of questions. Yeah. How did Liam? get to know Brennan like we kind of know that he at one point slips and says something like oh like you're you're so similar to like we see in a reread that he's referencing Brennan we can assume at least how would Liam have gotten to know Brennan how would any of them I will even include Zayden in there
0: I'm going off of our our society fo- at least what I know of our society's foster system I, and it's not a whole lot that I know about this so please take this with a grain of salt from what I understand around you know 18 16 to 18 you kind of go off into the world. My question, I'm more looking at Zayden here, is because he says he has a room in Arisha.
1: That's where he's from, though.
0: It's where he's from, yes, but it's also where Violet wakes up at the end, and they rebuilt Arisha, and they rebuilt it with giving Zayden a room. Also, Zayden's 23. If, If he did leave the foster system at, like, let's say, 18... He would have had two years before he entered the quadrant. So my guess is that he went back to Arisha in those two years to help rebuild, to do whatever he could. Maybe he even left the foster system early to try to do this. So my guess is, similarly, Liam might have done the same thing, and he went to Arisha because he was so close with Zayden. They obviously were in the foster system together. Zayden was already close with Brennan, maybe, and they connected that way.
1: I see what you're saying. I'm going to poke holes in it. Zayden and Liam both reference like how when they were training I, I can't remember the city's name and it begins with a T. I don't think that the leadership or who was fostering them would just like let them go and live their lives for two years. I think that with conscript being when they're 20 years old it's kind of like us joining the military when we're 18. I think that the idea of adulthood is at 20 years old not 18 years old. Again we don't know that for sure but I think it's a safe assumption.
0: No that's fair.
1: And, and I guess I read it as it was Zayden's room like that was his room growing up. But good point. They did burn it to the ground. So maybe it's just his new room rebuilt. But again, that brings up the question because Liam, how would he have gotten there? He would have had, he did not have a dragon to ride. You know, Liam was fostered by a Navarre loyalist before he went to the Riders Quadrant. And he would only be able to go to Arisha or anywhere outside of Benskaya on his own dragon, which he only bonded with a few months ago. And he is responsible for Violet's safety. So after he bonds with a dragon, like he's not going to be going off on these middle of the night adventures like Zayden does. He's staying back and True. watching Violet.
0: Here's what I will say. Later on in the missives, there's a thing that says like a bunch of people from Tyrandor do go into conscription in Navarre, which means they do have to travel without a dragon from Tyrandor to Navarre. True. I, I, I could see him it would just take a lot obviously a lot longer but I could see him like going back to his home before going into conscription and going to the writer's quadrant
1: I, that that to me is like the only but, explanation but why would he go back to his home because his home was given to Navarre loyalists it's not his home anymore I think he would follow Zayden but Zayden's in the writer's quadrant at this point but Zayden has a room in Orisha so sometimes he's
0: in Orisha like I don't know how often it's probably not that often but sometimes maybe he even gave Liam his room for a while. I don't know. These two, I, I view them almost like brothers, basically. And I think that that's how we're supposed to. Yeah. So I do think that Liam followed Zayden wherever he was when he was not in the Riders quadrant.
1: God damn it, Lexi. This is such a good question. I don't know. And we can, we can talk about this all day. We don't have the answers. So we can just spitball here. If you listeners, if you have any ideas about how Liam knows Brennan, please let us know. We are really yeah. curious to hear your thoughts on this uh, and keep diving into it. Going back to the archives here, Liam expresses that he really does get Violet's feelings towards the archives. You know. How it's home, but she's changed and doesn't really fit in anymore. And he says, you know, how he can relate. And I really think that he's referring to living in Navarre, you know, in, in general. It's technically his home, but he's really an outcast being a marked one. And, you know, they can relate to each other in such unique ways. I love Liam.
0: There's a moment after they leave where Violet says my legs feel really strong today and she says I love it when my body cooperates and I want to pull this line out for people like us who do not have chronic illnesses. I think it's, it's interesting for us to note that there are good days and there are bad days and please know that this is coming from someone who does not have a chronic illness so please take that with a grain of salt. I love this inclusion here to say like Violet's having a good day or Violet's having a bad day. Rebecca in her interview with health.com mentions that there's never a day that goes by when you do not make a decision without including information about your own chronic illness. And I think that it's just so important for us to know like, yeah, she's at this writer's quadrant. Yes, she's going through this major transition, but this is still very much a part of her life. And so I just, I love little additions of lines like that. Let's talk about Markham's scroll and the battle brief scene. We learn that the villages of Somerton are being ransacked, supply convoys being looted, and we know that it's at high
1: altitude. So many questions. Why high altitude for these supplies? Why attack for the supplies in general? Like we can assume the raid is to get things against the Venon or the Venon have destroyed everything. So poor meal citizens need things to survive. Like we're going to go into that a little bit more in today's archive section. But there's so many questions around these high altitude Rates and why they're happening at the frequency and intensity that they are happening.
0: I have such a boring answer, and it is: I think we're not supposed to know yet. I think that this is something that, like, the high altitude means something. It keeps popping up. It was it was literally in the very first battle brief scene, and it was from Violet. So that's something we should absolutely no. That is Rebecca literally giving a neon sign to high altitude. But it's mentioned that Griffins can't fly as well in high altitude. So why are all these supply lootings happening in high altitude? I wonder, because I'm assuming the supply lootings are Zayden and his crew.
1: Oh, I didn't think so. I have other questions around that. I don't think it possibly could be Zayden in them, but maybe it is. But we're not hearing anything about like Griffin writers.
0: I have an idea. What if because outposts know that griffins do not do as well in high altitudes, they're less fortified? It's easier for griffins and possibly Zayden and his crew to loot because there's less guards, there's less riders roaming around. We're going to be getting into all of that in today's archive Okay, I'll hold, I'll hold then, I'll hold. Violet reads this letter from Markham and then there's this huge what the fuck moment that she and Liam have and then Immediately, Rebecca Yaros distracts us with this overcoming hunger that Violet feels through Taren. which honestly, I don't even have a dragon. Same feel that on a spiritual level. I love that scene because it's like, here's this huge download and you really should think a oh, squirt? Nope. You're going to think yeah. about this instead. I love that writing because it directs us as a, as readers not to think about it too much and to, to get distracted. But was it marked classified? Why was it not marked? classified? I
1: don't think it was marked classified. Violet would have seen it. I, I absolutely agree. Now, that begs the question of who is marking things as classified? Maybe the <gasps> scribes are not always marking things as classified and it's actually the professors and the leadership within the writer's quadrant who are and they're essentially refusing to let the writers know how dangerous things really and truly are that's terrible leadership and management, but that's kind of the whole point of all of this, right? <laughs> that would definitely make it classified, but we have to ask, because it wasn't initially classified by the scribes, I don't think that Venin were directly involved. I, no, I think that it's a pretty idea. safe bet, because otherwise it would have just been wiped from the records. That does, however, pose the question of why is it not included if it's not originally marked classified? Does Navarian leadership know it was directly tied to the Venin and they need to keep it secret? Was one of these boxes involved that the Venom were so interested in and that's something that leadership is hiding. I'm thinking the scribes don't mark it as classified, but it's now the writer's quadrant who are really the ones who are gatekeeping essential information. We we later learn from Mira that if they covered every battle, they'd be in battle brief all day long. But her argument that they don't need to know everything doesn't hold because we know the professors were lying when they said the borders are inactive. Like that was a bold-faced lie. That makes Mira's argument essentially irrelevant and untrue. And she doesn't know that. What if the leadership has a feeling the marked ones are associated with these attacks? I don't think they're the actual ones doing it. But remember, they're supplying the Griffin flyers with supplies. So leadership knows that they are in some way associated and don't want to give them any more information. In the Iron Flame summary, it says, quote, because Violet knows the real secret hidden for centuries at Beskaioth War College. Like, is this info tied to that secret? I absolutely think so.
0: I think so too, hundred percent. I love this idea that the
1: scribes are not the ones who write
0: th- that mark things as classified, but it's leadership that just makes sense
1: to me. Now they're still the ones who who are rewriting history, and and they definitely sure. play a role. But I think that it goes so much deeper. That in some ways, especially the first years who are reporting from the front lines, they don't have any of this information. So they're just doing what they're told, and then it's leadership who's like, "Whoa, nope, sweep that under the rug. Excuse us, don't don't mind that." I guess like a uh, describe
0: sign like an NDA or something because they would know so much that everyone else just doesn't. Like, they have to sign some kind of, or maybe it's not, like, written in blood or anything, but there must be some kind of oath that's, like, you do not talk. But then there's Violet's dad. So many questions. Oh, my God. So many mm-hmm. questions. God, I want answers. I want them now. <laughs> As Violet's going into battle brief, she notices that people are just kind of, like, you know, moving away from her. They're saying, like, sorry, Soaring She kind of is getting a little frustrated by it. And Taryn, in her head, says that people are showing the correct amount of difference to Violet. And she retorts back to what they think I'll be, not who I am. And Taryn says that shows excellent forethought. This to me feels like such a pointed line because is this what he did when he bonded with her? Did he bond because he sees who she can be more than she currently is? And I don't mean that as a diss to Violet by any means. I mean that as like he sees the potential and the destiny that she has in front of her. I love that line. Like that shows excellent forethought, which if it is in the same contents, it's definitely Taryn like patting himself on the back. Like, mm, that shows excellent forethought. I'm a genius. Good job, me. That's exactly what he's doing. Which is such a Taryn thing to do <laughs> I, entirely. I do wonder, like, I know he said he bonded with her because she protected Darna, but I know that there's more to this. I know that there's more to the reason why he bonded her and he's not telling her anything. Now, I will say, Violet, when she's sitting with her fellow first years, she's like, I'm not really getting killed that much. And and Rees like, are you an idiot? Like, yeah, you're you're literally getting killed every other day. She's like, only that one time, meaning like the time that they broke into her room. This m- reminds me of Harry Potter level. I think I'm safe. No one's trying to kill me. Voldemort hasn't tried to kill me in three months. And everyone's like, dude, you're never safe. What are you talking about? And he's like, I just want to date a girl and play sports. It <laughs> just, to me, feels so, I'm totally safe. I'm totally fine. And everyone around him is like, are you an idiot?
1: No. Again, it's just a typical Wednesday, right? <laughs> As we move into sparring practice, I'm curious about the re- Bellian relics, and if the size of them have to do with one of two things: one is their parents' involvement, and two, their age. And I'm wondering this because it's pointed out on several occasions, kind of like the size of their relics, specifically that Zayden's is the largest, and then Garrick's is the second largest. I know. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> so that's just kind of, and so we know that both of their parents were heavily involved. So I I thought, I, I didn't know, but it, maybe it does have to do with their age. I don't know. My guess is age
0: because. Zayden is the oldest and it is stated that his is the
1: biggest which
0: <laughs> just kills me.
1: But like is Garrick the second oldest? We don't know. We don't know that for a fact. I think he is. He's just he's Zayden's right it, hand like they're both third years. He's the um sense. he's
0: their section leader. But I will say we don't know what Garrick's parents or parent involvement in the war was do we? I don't think we do. We do not. That that's a that's a good question. We need to talk about Zayden and Garrick sparring. So yeah, we
1: do. <laughs> oh my
0: god, the sparring scenes in this section of chapters is capital D delicious. Like I love this shit so much. Zayden and Garrick are sparring. My question is, are they showing off? Do you think for Violet and Imogen? Like, do you think that Garrick has also a crush on Imogen? Like, this is a two way street.
1: I'm gonna say that it's one sided right now, but I definitely think there's going to be be a love interest there moving forward. So there's a line that Violet says she'd never seen him shirtless before he's never seen he never sparred shirtless when so many others did and I think that's definitely because he's purposefully hiding his scars and so I wonder if he purposefully took his shirt off because it's like he finally I'll say trusts Violet enough to see these scars on his back like he's not ready to tell her about it but maybe it's like okay like she can see this one little part of that
0: I definitely could see that I also think that we don't really see Zayden sparring with someone at his level like we see him earlier in the book sparring with Violet but that's not the Something that makes him break that's not Garrick. Yeah, But there is like a moment where she just finds them as they're moving faster than she ever thought humanly possible. So I do think that they're using their lesser magic there to like move really fast. So I wonder if also it's like they're just finally going all fucking out, and in order to do that, they need to like flex their. You know, I'm I'm a guy, and I can sh- I can actually like work out shirtless and whatnot. Now, is that is that what guys think when they? Yeah, apparently, oh. like I work out shirtless, man. <laughs> <laughs> But I do wonder if it was more from the lines of, this is more comfortable for us if we're gonna be working this fucking hard. I do think it was an added bonus of like, let me let my girl check me out a little. Like I definitely, which is just ugh. Jealous Dane is perfect. Get back to work. It's, it's described by Violet that he looks at her and his eyes are narrowed and he looks betrayed. Can,
1: <sighs> he looks betrayed motherfucker. (laughs) I just can't with this guy. He knows that she's interested in Zayden. Like, it's like, he feels betrayed that she's looking at Zayden shirtless and he's he's putting some pieces together. Yeah, he's definitely putting some pieces together.
0: Well, and you know in his headcanon, if he did not read her mind and see the conversation with Rhi and know that Vi was not interested in the kiss. Like, if, if that is just, like, utter blind spot for Dane. If he thinks that she is on the same page as him and, like, after graduation they're gonna have, like, this happily ever after the fact that he gets to see her like drooling over another guy just oh man I love that I but I also love that like he looks betrayed like he's not constantly betraying her He is such a fucking hypocrite drives me crazy when Jack starts being Jack Zayden comes to I, won't, I don't want to say comes to her rescue he comes to stand behind her and again every single instance where Zayden steps to the side or behind Violet I want to point out because Garrick steps to the side Liam all steps to the side I believe and Imogen just scooches a little closer but Zayden is behind her and I love that because it's Violet's fight it's Violet in the front and he's just there for support if she needs it. Now, to be fair, right after that, he gets right up in her face and like cuts in front of her. And is like, why the fuck are you not wearing your things? Uh, potato, potato. But like, you know, I do think that him, him also saying to Jack, he's like, yeah, right. Because I'm the one who buried the dagger in you at threshing. He's giving her credit. He's backing up that she's the strong one. Meanwhile, Dane's like, what the hell were you thinking,
1: egging him on like that? And it's just like, He's so fucking unhelpful. Like, even before this scene, I had a note. Like, I have not... Noticed him helping anyone on the mat yet? Everybody else is helping each other out on the mats. They're training one another. They're a team. They're a squad. They work together. What is he doing? I, how does he become a wing leader? Like he does not show leadership qualities except just barking orders at them all the time. Like I, I think it's because he he has some keys to information. He is a, a source for information, and that just shows how essential that is to leadership. I 100% agree. Yeah, and his dad is currently. So there's definitely
0: some nepotism happening here at BizGaiath War College, but I definitely think the reason he goes to Wing Leader is because of his signet, which is kind of delicious that it's like not really something that is his character, it's something that his dragon gives him. Like, you know, like Zayden. Zayden is a born wing leader. It makes sense that he is a wing leader. Dane would be wing leader because his signet, which he gets from his dragon, is just
1: really good. He has such a sense of entitlement. And again, he is a squad leader and he probably got, like, he worked his way up to that. He's really good at what he does. He's good at sparring. You know, he he was the squad leader who kept his squad alive the longest. But what did he personally do to help keep his team alive the longest?
0: fucking nothing.
1: He, he just yells at them. Last thing I'll note here on this confrontation with Jack and, and Dane's response. Let's note she had three protectors at her side when Jack was taunting her and not a single one of them was Dane. And Dane is way off in the distance watching all of this happen when Liam, Garrick, and Zayden all step up for her. Dane defends Violet against Zayden. Not Jack, not Amber, not the real enemies, but Zayden. God fucking damn it, Dane. (laughs) It
0: just drives me crazy. (laughs) After Zayden like steps into her way, gets all up in her grill, and he's like, why the fuck are you not wearing your vest? He and her have this huge standoff moment. I love this line that's like, what is it about Zayden that makes me block out the rest of the world? I could see this as a faded mate's clue, but I also just see it as like they are so unbelievably attracted to each other that it's almost like tunnel vision. And Zayden earlier in that stretch says, I'm annoyingly aware of everything you do. I love this line because it is such a diss, but it also is such a like, I'm so attracted to you. Lexi, what did you make of this line when you first read it?
1: I really do read it as like Liam and Taryn are really good at their tattle chill jobs. Like you're just really good at what they I do. We know that about Liam. We can guess that from Taryn as well, because Violet kind of gives him a hard time about, like, stop sharing my stuff with, with Sigal, you know? That's how I interpreted it, where it's like, oh my gosh, Zayden has, like, from his mind with Taryn and from, like, just from the Daily Report with Zayden, it's just like, that's a, a lot of Violet. Reporting. I could definitely see that. And I think that's what we're supposed to think. I think
0: also I could see this as an intense clue. I could see this as yep. a faded mates clue. And the shadows, like obviously, he, he's obviously, mentioned yep. numerous times. He can hear what the shadows hear. There is nothing like he knows about Dane Signet, even though it's supposed to be super, super classified. He knows about all these things that are hidden in the shadows. And I'm I'm taking intrinsic out of the out of the conversation here. This is solely just his shadows are overhearing conversations. Yep. That yep. to me, like I know that because because he is so infatuated with Violet, if he heard a shadow from 500 feet away that said, Violet, like someone's talking about Violet, he would immediately like, mm? perking up like a dog, like like his ears would (laughs) go like this and immediately listen. So I'm assuming that also plays into it as well. Like he hears every single Violet mention and I bet it's probably starting to get annoying to him. Like he's like, I don't want to be attracted to this girl, but I fucking hear her name everywhere and it's driving me crazy. I love that. my God. I'm so excited to talk about this. I can't fucking wait. Violet beginning to channel this entire rest of chapter 22. I cannot tell you how many times I have listened to chapter 22 in preparation for this episode. It has been an embarrassing amount of times. I do wonder though, going into just her getting the huge surge of power from Taryn, I wonder if everyone has a similar experience and why they don't talk about it. Why does no one talk about the fact that it like will literally take you out at the knees and it feels almost like painful. I love the use of the wording. She says, I crack open. And that to me sounds almost like the sky cracks open with lightning. I
1: just... Absolutely love. It. I took. I, I. I had some notes on this section as well. Just wondering as well if this was a unique experience for her because of her magnified powers and just like the verbiage there, yeah, with like crack open and like all these like little hints to that lightning. Ah, oh, I just love it. And I love Rebecca's writing here. You know, this isn't the most fantasy book, but we're really starting to see that magic element and power as her signet begins manifesting. You know, it's really coming into play here and we love fantasy. We love the magic and I am just so here for it. She describes the power, quote, it is everything I am and everything I can be all at once. Woo! I love it. Oh, it's so
0: good. Okay. Did Taryn and Gale know what they were doing? We need we need to settle this debate right now. Did Taryn and Gale know what they were fucking doing?
1: And I mean that literally. It, like it's just you can put a shields up. No like, way did he forget. It reminds me of the time, like years and years ago, I went to tell my boyfriend's mom something. She had asked me to follow up with her on, and I walked in on her and her boyfriend just like full blown getting it on and was like, oh, <laughs> I read that. I was like, huh. Oh. That reminds me of that one time we
0: had very different experiences with parents of boyfriends. But like, I will say it is very like, there is no way Taryn is like, I'm going to start channeling into her. But then I'm also going to start getting it on with Sigal. Like there's no, like he is such an intelligent person. Literally the definition of a black dragon is intelligence there is no way that this was an accident also they started doing this then right as Zayden and Violet start kissing when they break apart Violet notices oh Taryn and Segal are done like did they climax while Zayden and Violet were getting it on too which if that's the case that's I-
1: weird <laughs> I think they might have climaxed multiple times because she kept feeling like <laughs> waves, you know, coming over her. So good for them, you know. Damn, Taryn, good job. But okay, wait, so so you're you're saying that you don't think that this is an accident. I definitely got the impression that it was like it was just a consequence of channeling and then that's like they just did that. But are you saying that they like her? I'm saying he
0: did not shield himself and it's like, all right, Violet, this is what happened. <laughs> I'm saying this is a full blown fiddler on the roof, Yenta matchmaker moment. Like that is exactly what I'm <laughs> saying this is. <laughs> wait. Side note, Nicole was the youngest sister in Fiddler on the Roof freshman year in high school. Not to be battled with the moment where I was in Bye Bye Birdie and I had to change on stage and Lexi was in the audience and she cat called me. And our dad's like, stop it. Thank God for those moments. Wow. Well, so what's your final, like, what's your final answer here, Lexi? Do you think that it was on purpose or do you think that this is just a, a consequence of channeling? Oh, I
1: think it's a consequence of channeling. Interesting. I'm 100% in the camp that this was on purpose. I had honestly not not even considered that. Are you serious? That's the first it's... question I had. I was like, those bitches. <laughs> are you
0: serious? I mean, not uh... to say that I'm complaining about it. I would have done the same fucking thing. <laughs> but I'm still just like, wow. Community, we want to know what are your opinions on this. Was it on purpose? Was it a consequence of channeling? Or was this just a freak accident? We want to know. Tell-,
1: tell us your thoughts on dragon sex, please. <laughs> We're talking about channeling, Lexi, not dragon sex, obviously. Tomato, tomato, right?
0: (laughs) God, I love this book. Oh, my God. I just have to start off from the top. Like, the middle of the night meetups, these are probably my favorite trope of all time in... Literature. Like, I love when it's the crackling energy between the two characters. And then there's like this middle that it happens all the time in like the selection in Akatar in this book series. And I just, I love it. I gobble this up. I think this might be my only equivalent to they go to an inn and there's only one bed. Th- those are top tier to me enemies to lovers tropes. And I love it. I love it so much. I just want to say that Jealous Zayden might be one of my favorite things on this planet like if you read this section where he's like what what Liam like what are you talking about but you do no Violet inner monologue like you just read the dialogue it 100% sounds like Violet and Liam Absolutely just fucked. But here's my question. Did Zayden seriously not think that this was a possibility when he put
1: Liam on guard duty for Violet? Right? He's like, well, I mean, if you both are consenting adults, it's like, it's kind of like, a oh, that's well, shit. I guess I can't be mad about that, but I am mad about it, but I can't be. I think that he knows that Liam is such a golden retriever that... He kind of knows that it's a safe bet. He can tell that Liam's going to be friend zoned real hard there.
0: Also, he did set Liam on, set Liam on Violet. He did assign Liam to Violet after she has bonded with Tarn. So maybe since Zayden already has that mind hole open to Violet, he knows how hard she's crushing on him. So maybe he was like...
1: I don't have competition. I'm fine. Which is such a cocky thing to say. That and I, you know, thinking about risk and reward, it's like, okay, I would much rather have her a good bodyguard who she may occasionally have sex with versus... Her dying and I die. You know, that's a a good hierarchy right there.
0: Like, I kind (laughs) of get that. I do love that when Zayden is saying your bed, it's described as his voice is like a crack of lightning. And then just moments later, it says the rising tide of lust thundering through me. Every single inch of this section is... Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing her signet, and I love it. I also love the description, considering that this is her first time channeling, and she's about to wield lightning at the very same moment. Like this couldn't. There are some people who have some weird feelings about the scene. They're like, their first kiss was, you know, with influence through other people, or people just don't understand that dragon sex is fucking hilarious, and I don't understand those people in the slightest. But I think that this is such a perfect scene for these two. Of course, it's when Taryn and Sigal are fucking in the background. Of course, Zayden is high. Of course, there's all of this stuff happening to her for the first time through channeling. This, in
1: my mind, is a perfect perfect scene. It's a really good cumulation. It's like, okay, enemies to lovers, they have to get there somewhere. Hmm, how can they kind of be, well, what's that thing that kind of sets them up? What's the straw that broke the camel's back? Yeah. Let's have their dragons have sex. And it's, I gotta say, it's kind of cute how offended Zayden is when Violet, once again, accuses him of not helping her. He represents all of us readers where it's like wanting to shake Violet and it's like, um, hello? Like, I am helping you, you idol. Yes. No, like, What are you talking about? Let me about? list all of the things I've done here for you. You, you know, yep. talking
0: about how wonderful Zayden is, there is a moment when he is about to help her start learning how to ground and shield. And he's like, Ask me nicely. And he says, Say please. And oh, oh this is the enemies to lover shit I love. Look, I really like to think of myself as a contemporary woman. You know, I like my feminism. And If this man told me to do anything, if he told me to do anything, I wouldn't question. I would heartbeat follow his orders. And
1: you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm falling for Zayden too in this stretch. It's a good, it is a good Zayden stretch. In fact, like the rest of this book is just very good Zayden finally.
0: I'm like, the second it's like his eyes darken, I'm like, I'm in love with him. I'm in it, I'm in it, I'm in it. And you're like, I need emotional connection to this guy. (laughs) That says a lot about us and I love it. I do also want to point out the humor in this stretch is just superb. Zayden is literally like inches away from her and he's a, he's like flirting hardcore. And she's like, have you
1: always been this tall? (laughs) Like she's like, And then she's, like, poking him. Like, what a a giddy 20-year-old thing to do. Like, I'm sure I did stupid stuff like this, too, when I was 20 with the guy that I was crushing on. And I just love it. Now, so my husband Brett and I have
0: an inside joke that is... I can't flirt. Like, I am not good at flirting in the slightest. I am terrible at it. I am very much like Violet, where I'd be like, have you always been this tall? Or like, like it's, it's like almost insults, but about totally meaningless things. And it's in like a joking manner. And Brett, he finds it so hilarious because he's really good at flirting. And you, not to say this in a bad way, but like, you wouldn't expect it when you first meet him. Like, he is just such a giddy person, like so kind and will bend over backwards for people. But he's a really good flirt. And us flirting at the beginning of our relationship was hilarious because it's basically this scene. <laughs> like, it was basically this scene. Zayden's so calm, cool, and collected, and like, you know, towering over her and like, you know, staring at her. And she's like swatting snow off of her face. <laughs> and, like, I'm pretty sure this happened to me in my relationship. I'm not going to put this in favorite lines section because it, it belongs here. And it is the line that Violet says, which is Zayden, would you pretty please teach me how to shield before I accidentally climb you like a tree. <laughs> I love that. That's where it's like, oh yeah, feisty girl coming out. I love it. Because like in the beginning of the book, she's very flirtatious with Dane. At, oh yeah. Like, very, like to the point where I'm like, whoa, I would never say that to a friend, but like, go girl. You know, we'll get to sparring later with Zayden, but she also kind of brings that out with him too. But I love the moment. Zayden, you know, he not only cups her face, he like, grabs her face. And he says, you have incredibly touchable skin. I never knew I needed a part. I needed a partner to say that to me until I read that line. And I was like, mm, I need to hear that. And then he says, you are astonishing after she learns how to ground and it's like instantaneous. And I'm just like, oh, like that to me is so much more than just like, oh, lust, hunger. You know, there's even a, a note later that says there's more than hunger in his eyes as he stares at my lips. Like that, the way that I took that was like, he's, falling for her like that's not just it's not more than hunger where it's like lust it's more than hunger like oh I'm deeply caring for this person and especially after him saying like you are astonishing I love Satan. Oh, my God. I'm so afraid for him into Iron Flame. I'm so
1: afraid. Oh, now I'm just going to splash some cold water on you here. Can we marvel at how good Violet is at grounding? Let's give her a round of applause. She has learned how to ground in record time. That is 100% what I'm thinking about in this
0: chapter. Absolutely, Lexi, yes. 100%. 100%. Look, well,
1: I think it's a reflection on how powerful she's going to become and where her biggest strengths are, which is her mind. You know, I, I have to wonder if the symbolism of the archives being her happy place, if it's going to shift with what her mental shields are going to look like and what her mental grounding is going to look like as she begins learning more about the secrets that the archives has been keeping and, and or not the archives, but the scribes who represent the archives, right, have been keeping from her. And I also just... Again, side note, I love the visual descriptions of grounding. Again, that fantasy element, that magic element is really starting to come in here. And I just absolutely love it. And later on, she, you know, she becomes best in her year at shielding. And we gotta wonder, good enough to shield against Dane and Iron Flame. That is 100% what I think that this is
0: here for. The fact that she is the best in her year, the fact that she gets this right away where Zayden is saying, you're astonishing. If that is not used for her to shield against Dane and Iron Flame, and it is just like wiping her memories, that like deeply upsets me. Like, I, I really hope that does not happen. I personally don't see that happening because we get so many hints about how good she is at like shielding against him. And I would assume that would also work against people like Dane. Now, to be fair, Dane would have to literally put his hands on her, at least as far as we know, unless he becomes monsterly powerful by the time he's a wing leader in Iron Flame to the point where he can just, like, stare at someone and see it, but I don't see that happening. That would be just, like, OP. There's no way. He, he would just be
1: so overpowered in this entire world. Like, even leadership with him under their control, that's a huge oh, no-no. No. So, like, the fact that he has to touch the person is huge. Now, we're gonna get to this later with Imogen, because that is not the situation for her. To What we know, but I'll save that for a little later.
0: Here's what I do want to say about this grounding exercise she did with Zayden. I swear to God, I've done this in therapy. I swear to God that I have done this in therapy when it comes to anxiety attacks, like 100%. And I just love that little connection because it's like, yes this is very high fantasy. In this moment, it's more high fantasy. It's more like these mental images and and really diving into our mind. And yet it is still so relatable. Rebecca has talked about how she wanted this book to be a gateway drug for a lot of people getting into the fantasy world. And this to me is just such a perfect example of how, yes, it is really getting into the fantasy element. And I love that. I love that about this book. And it is still very connected to this is something you might have experienced. And I may be, definitely, absolutely 100% have used this type of exercise before. And I I just, I love it so much. Can we talk about the lines that are like, he groans, he growls whenever it's in a sexy scene? Because all I hear, Uh. all I hear, (laughs) maybe not that, (laughs) but all I hear is Geralt of Rivia. All I hear is Henry Cavill, my favorite man on the entire planet, just like talking to Yennefer and like, Like, you
1: know, <laughs> when I was uh, first reading Court of Thorns and Roses series, my husband and I were watching season three of The Witcher. And first of all, it's really hard. Like, I can only focus on one fantasy world at a time, which is why I'm not reading anything but Fourth Wing right now, right? Mm-hmm. For now. For now, yes. A- and so we're watching it, and I just could not stop laughing because, like, as new characters are introduced in the Akitar series, there's lots of growling and eyes darkening, and you know, and it's just like, oh my gosh, this is just Geralt, like, here. And there's a TikTok yeah. that went super viral and yes. right. And I was I, I trying finding it that we could link to it, but I wasn't able to. I'm sure a lot of you know which one I'm referring to here. It's Geralt. <laughs> like that's it all is it is. 100% Geralt. <laughs> yeah. However, we need to take it to the next
0: level because there's the kiss scene. I just want to start off by saying this might be one of my favorite literature kiss scenes, just kiss scenes, nothing else happening I've ever read because it is so well written. It is so well written to the point where you read it and you're like, oh, I'm I'm feeling things like I am feeling things deep inside myself. It's also you know, a lot of the times, you know, it's, it's kiss scenes and it immediately escalates into something more. And this one doesn't. And I love that. I love that. This is just such a good it's just such a well written kiss scene. I remember listening to this for the first time and just blushing. Maybe it's just because I came from the YA world, which is very like, you know, PG, maybe sometimes PG 13 kiss scenes but this is like a PG-13 ass grabbing up against the wall kissing. Hold on. The book you read right before this was A Court of Silver Flames. Yeah, there's no just kiss scenes to, to my knowledge. Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. I think there is one, but th- there are like, I'm going to, I will say there are some. It has a hard turn in it where it's like, it kind of splashes some cool water on you with that one. This is the first one where it was like, Oh, my God. So I have to, as the hopeless romantic, I have to get on my little high horse in my smut little
1: literature world. But so highly showing signs of lightning wielding, right? We, we mentioned this earlier. And Zayden, of course, notices it that we learn later on. So, quote, a flash of light burns behind my closed eyes, followed by the boom of thunder. I just love that. Like you would never, like in the first read, you don't think anything of it. And again, when you re- reread it. So many little keywords, lightning, cracks, flashes of light, booms of thunder, all of this just I love it. I love it so much. And so I have I'm going to ask you here was Zayden's gasp and panic as he breaks away from the kiss. Is that him reacting to her to like maybe feeling her electric power? Or is it a reaction just to their forbidding kiss?
0: What I think it was, was the wake up call of like, oh my God, what are we doing? Like it was like, it was a loud noise that like snapped him out of the moment that then he was like, wait. Taryn and Seagal were the ones who started this. I think the reason he broke it and quite I, the way I read it is he felt sh- maybe shame is too too big of a word for it. Maybe, maybe not. But he felt d- disappointed in himself because he thinks that he's almost taking advantage of her, even though she is definitely being not influenced much by Taryn,
1: really. He wants it to be real. And he's realizing in this moment, he cannot guarantee that it is real and that hurts him you know like there's kind of like that shame of like oh shoot like I I gotta pull pull back here you know
0: I'm gonna get more into this in chapter I think it's 30 the first time that they sleep together and that is uh, there is something in the way that Zayden is written when he finally goes all in with Violet and even in this moment too that almost seems to me like he's got something dark in his past because the amount of times he asks like do you know what you're saying like are you okay with me touching you are you okay like after I literally shove you up against the armoire but here even like him saying like I'm begging you to go please there's something that we're missing here that I do think Zayden has something in his past that has heavily influenced him feeling like he can't just go
1: all out with someone I will uh Agree with you to an extent. I don't think it's necessarily a past relationship or past feelings that he's feel that the baggage comes from. I think that it is this is a completely new experience for him as well and he is freaking out. I even remember I I think in like his POV or or something along those lines that he says or thinks he's never fallen for anyone before. Like he's had flings. He's had friends with benefits. He's had all of these, you know, he's certainly experienced but not when it comes to love. And he's kind of freaked out that he's falling in love with someone, especially Violet. That's how I interpret that. And also, you know, he has a lot of his own trauma with his dad and the rebellion and 107 kids who are his responsibility. And I'm sure a whole lot of other things that we have not even learned about yet. It's almost like he doesn't feel like he deserves or is worthy or has time for falling in love, but it's happening anyway. And he doesn't know what to do about it. Oh, that just kills me.
0: I love seeing it so much. It just absolutely kills me. No, I I definitely see where you're coming from. And I could totally see that. That's going to be something I'm going to look out for because I agree. I don't think he's had like any serious relationship before. I mean, when they do sleep together for the first time, he's like, I've never lost control like that, which to me, he's had like one night stands and stuff like that where it's you know on a one night stand you are guarded as fuck at least
1: (laughs) no comment I'm not gonna say anything
0: there (laughs) however after they break their kiss I find it so notable that Taryn and Sigale are done there nothing is coming from Taryn's channeling to Violet this to me really just cemented that We're going to get it on to get these kids getting it on. And then we're going to be like, our work here is done.
1: And that that is wonderful that we can agree to disagree because I am fully in the camp that they had no idea that like they were in their own world. Good for them. Woo, dragon sex. That's what I think. (laughs) I do not think Zayden and Violet were on their minds. Can woo dragon sex be on a (laughs) t-shirt? I'm going to say this. I think Taryn owes Violet an apology. At least if a, sorry you walked in on us. My <laughs> bad. It's like, you know, like in college, like I did not put the sock on the door. My bad. <laughs>
0: That kills me. That is so funny.
1: Okay, we will walk away
0: from the scene now because I am sweating through my sweatshirt. The next morning, Re and Violet have a powwow. And again, I just love pointing out every moment that this book is just so relatable because I can't even recall how many times I'd had these conversations with my girlfriends where, you know, they come into my room the next morning after a wild night or whatever. And it's just like, I, I love these moments where it just immediately we see ourselves in these characters. Since these two ladies are speculating about the post-graduation situation with the Bonded Dragons. How do you think that that's going to go post-graduation? Because I'm assuming we're going to know very quickly in Iron Flame what's going to happen.
1: I think that there's going to be a lot of back and forth for Violet and Zayden. I don't think one of them is going to be responsible for going back and forth. I think it'll definitely have to be some compromises there. And I really do think the new Vice Commandant is absolutely going to play a role with his personal mission to teach Violet exactly how powerless she is unless she betrays him. So I think that he might refuse to let them be united unless he gets info on Zayden from Violet. Because if he essentially doesn't let them be near one another, it will weaken both of them. It will weaken their dragons. It will literally make her less powerful. Also, it's notable that most mated pairs bond within the same year meaning Taryn was definitely not ready three years ago when Sigal and Zayden bonded. In fact, he wasn't even ready this year. But why didn't Segail wait until Taryn was ready to bond again? It's not like three years is that long for a dragon, right? Yeah. Like they live 200 years. So it goes right back to that question about do the dragons know more than they're letting on about who's going to be coming up for bonding, how and why they choose their dragon riders. Like it begs that question. I do think that because Sigal
0: was bonded with Zayden's grandfather, I know that This is against dragon law, but Sigal kind of does what a girl wants, what a girl needs. But I do think that Sigal knew that Zayden was coming in and she was like, this is the son of Fen Ryerson. I need to be bonded to him. But Taryn was like, I'm not ready. So I do think maybe there was like a little lover squabble around it, possibly. What I'm curious about is Ree says, Fierg says, her dragon, says that we won't be able to be apart for more than a couple days. Now, I do wonder because of everything that happens in Montserrat and what we're Assume is going to happen next year. Does that bond that Taryn and Seagal have also extend to Violet and Zayden because in Montserrat, you you know, he has that moment where he's like, you never considered it was you I couldn't stay away from. I do wonder if that we can't be apart for more than a couple days
1: extends to really just like the four of them as a whole. I'm leaning more and more towards something along the lines of Faded Me. I don't think that's exactly what it is here between the two of them, but there's a deeper connection, a deeper attraction beyond just physical, right, between the two of them. But I definitely think that in Iron Flame, the the big question about what they are doing now after graduation, new vice commandant is absolutely going to play a pivotal role in that with trying to control how much they see one another and therefore literally draining them of their power and their dragons' power. I hadn't thought of that, and that that
0: actually rips my heart open. I am so afraid for Taryn. Oh God. Oh God. I have so many questions. Re. And her signet. Can we talk about how fucking convenient this is? Violet says, that's the kind of rare signet that will make your entire career. So that does make me wonder what I could see happening with Re when she post-graduation, all that kind of stuff. Because she will live post-graduation. I refuse to believe that she will die in Bezgayeth. No oh, way. We're not going no there. Way. Yep. She's she, absolutely she, yeah, not. I will be a wreck if that happens. I do think that she's going to be used mainly for heist missions, basically, where they have to go in and steal something. And she'll be able to steal something through the walls, which is so cool. I love that. But I'm curious for you, how do you think that this might come into play in future books? Like, will she be on the Rebel side or do you think she's going to be on the Navarian side? Don't
1: have an answer to that. First and foremost, her and Quinn, Quinn who can, like, astro project, like, they would be a formidable team. Like, I want both of them on my squad. I want Reed just to live in my home and and help me find everything. If you didn't listen to the AMA bonus episode, I lose everything. I'm, I'm a mom. I have mom brain. I lose everything everywhere. And I need summoning powers, like, now. But back to your question, how do I think that Reed power is going to come into play later in the I, uh, first of all I, of course I don't know but if there is another battle with this similar mysterious bots that the then are after I think that's definitely going to play a bigger role in the books to come she would come in super clutch she could yeah. potentially just get that box right on out of there I also think that from their conversation you know oh you can't summon through walls yet yeah. I think can almost guarantee we will see her summon through walls. I could see it being at a very climactic moment where it's like a you need to do this or everybody dies kind of thing. Just based on this conversation here, we're really going to see her manifest some extraordinary summoning powers here. God, I can't wait.
0: I love Rhee. You know who we don't love? There's not a lot of Dane in this stretch of chapters, but of course, I have to point out every second that Dane takes major L's right after you know they had their big fight on the flight field where Taren like growled at him and you know all that kind of stuff and they they had this huge blow up and he runs to Violet as she's walking into Professor Carr's class for the first time and he's like we need to talk and she's like it's convenient for you right now but it's not convenient for me and he's like please like come on Violet it, weeks have passed yeah it's been like we had montage number one already like he's basically been ignoring her from from what we've gathered like with sparring and like their sparring sessions on Tuesday nights and stuff. But my question is, do you think that leadership finally got on him for getting in fights with Violet and thus needed him to get back in her good graces? I mean, if that was the goal, he didn't do so well in this conversation. But is that why he's like, major air quotes, apologizing?
1: I don't believe that. But that's also because you and I disagree on when he started working with leadership. Sure. I really do think that he started working with leadership after his dad and Lila Sorengale ran into her and Zayden, which we'll talk about way more here in a little while. I think that he, again, I really do think that he thinks that he's the good guy here. He's been dwelling on this whole incident wondering, oh, like, I guess I did do something wrong. I guess I wasn't really actually cool with me. But I did ask her, like, why is she acting this way? And this has been eating away at him for weeks now. It's only now that he wants to talk to her as she points out. So, you know, he says after what happened last night. Well, obviously, he does not know about the kiss with Zaden last night. That's a pretty safe assumption here, which I have some questions about here in a moment. But I do think he he obviously knows knows about her now channeling because he is her squad leader. And so it's like, oh shoot, like it's happening for her. Like again, like she, she's continuing to make it. She's stuck here. Like I I need to talk to her.
0: I can't believe I'm saying this. I do want to give Dane the smallest, italicized, bold, underline smallest bit of slack here. Because if my best friend since childhood, or like if you even, if you showed up and we had a formation the next morning and you had purple rings around your neck, I would be heartbroken for you and heartbroken that I had to learn in that way. Now, that's all the slack I'm getting him because I would have handled the situation extremely differently. I wouldn't have made it all about me and my betrayal that I've felt from you. I would be like, are you fucking okay? Jesus Christ, which he doesn't do first. Considering also what an ass he's been because he thinks that she's required to tell him, I don't think that that's really very kind. But I do also, I want to put myself in Dane's shoes as much as... I possibly can, and I do see how that would be hurtful. And I think he handled it in the absolute worst way humanly possible because, again, he made it all about him,
1: not about making sure she's okay. Which is so funny because that's like his big M.O. through the entire book. And remember, weeks have gone by since that incident happened. You were giving me a hard time for giving him the tiniest bit of slack back in like episodes one and episode two where it's like, yeah, that would be terrifying to see someone that you love go through that. We've had a lot of our listeners theorize that he has never actually cared about her, that he has very ulterior motives I think that is definitely a possibility. I personally do believe that he really does care about her yeah. in his super twisted way. So it's just like what what has he been thinking yeah. about? Like in these weeks that have gone by. Like is he just like staying up at late dwelling on this? I 100%. That's what I think instead of leadership. I
0: definitely see both sides. I'm still in the camp that I think he works with leadership earlier on in the book than we think, but I do definitely think that this was a huge part of it. I mean, like look at earlier when they were sparring, he looks at her and the the betrayal on his face. He's laying awake late at night thinking about her and like all of that. And she's like laying awake at night masturbating to Zayden. So, you know, it's, he does say, you've never been weak to me, Vi. Oh, is God. he an idiot? Back to Dane taking Else. Has he totally forgotten?
1: Or is he just that clueless? That is what I'm saying. That right there is why I think that he's a Hufflepuff, a bad dark puff. But he really does think that he is the good guy. You've never been weak to me, Vi. Like, it's like, do you need me to start listing off all of the things that have happened that make me think otherwise? Like, it's, again, your actions speak louder than your words, buddy.
0: I agree. And the more and more I'm thinking about the Dane Hufflepuff versus Slytherin, I'm leaning... Can't believe I'm saying this. I think I am leaning more Hufflepuff because there's a lot of people who commented on the videos, and I think you actually even made this point in in the full AMA that the loyalty that he has to leadership is is outweighed by all. He
1: is loyal, just not to the people we want him to be loyal. to.
0: I do want to echo though the person who commented and said that they were a, that he's a squib. That is canon in my head. But if he had to be a house, I do think I'm I am conceding. I do think it would be Hufflepuff. Now he does say I have a higher security clearance due to my signet, and you need to be careful. Zayden has secrets, reasons to never forgive your mother, and I don't want him to use you to get his revenge. Obviously, he's referring to, on some level, the 107 scars on his back and how he would assume Zayden would have so much out for Lilith. But I don't think that's it. I think that there is so much more to this line. And I want to know, what are your thoughts here?
1: I think that Dane is referring to more than just those 107 scars. So I think that the 107 scars are kind of like the carrot that's dangling in front of us where it's like, okay, like this is the surface level reason. And then we are going to learn, like peel back more and more layers, more and more secrets. I definitely think that there is going to be a plot twist that's that's just calling to us between the lines right now. It's like, I can feel it. I can sense it, but I just yeah. don't know what it is yet. There's definitely more to this. There are more secrets from Zayden. I think that there's a lot more between Zayden and Lilith that... Than we possibly could know about right now. I just don't even know what it could be. I love it.
0: I don't I I cannot wait to figure out what this is. So during this conversation with Dane, Violet says his Zayden's father put an arrow in Brennan's chest according to battlefield reports. That last part of that line is really important. So there's most likely in the Battle of Arisha, there were most likely a lot of people around who would have seen this which I'm assuming would have been why it's in battlefield reports. Now it could have been you know, Jon Snow egret kind of situation where so much is happening around them and really they're in their own little world. But but this does beg the question did Fen Ryerson kill Brennan knowingly did he do it for show did Brennan join the rebellion after being brought back by Naolin like we assume that he was not fully dead and most mostly dead if you will and <laughs> that's how he was brought back but like when did Brennan join? Like, how, what is the timeline here what's true what's I, not I don't
1: know I, I have no idea either and I really hope that's like one of the first things we learned about in Iron Flame <laughs> although I do think we are going to ba- open back up at Beskaiath or at least really refuse guys. I, I know we we again we disagree there. I don't have answers for any of that. But I do want to go back to those battlefield reports. Are they purposefully wrong be- from what those scribes wrote? What if their dad, Brennan and Violet's dad had something to do with the cover up and that had something to do with his heart giving out? Like maybe that's where People started to question his loyalty to Navarre and that led down his heart going out and his illness and eventually his death. I love that idea. I love that so much. I do just want to go on a little side tangent right here because we have gotten so many questions about Brennan's dragon and where his dragon is. So let's just go ahead and clear the air here with what I think we can assume based on the facts that we do have. Fact number one, we know that his dragon is still alive because Brennan cannot be alive if his dragon is not. Like, we learned that very clearly from Liam. And so we just have to, like, that is just a fact. His dragon has to be alive because Brennan is alive. We also know that they have to be close, physically close, because writers cannot be away from their dragons for more than a few days. We already talked about this. Brennan is also still mending. Obviously, he mended Violet at the end of the book, which means that he still has to be channeling power from his dragon. And we know that the dragons are already very secretive with the humans and no human is allowed at the veil. I am going to assume the fact that his dragon is not around isn't really that big of a deal to Beskai. Like that's not some big question mark for them because Beskai probably believes his dragon was severely weakened when Brennan seemingly died and he's obviously not ready to bond again. Think about Taryn. No one had yeah. seen him since Naolin died five years ago. We know that from Professor Kaori. So the fact that we haven't seen Brennan's dragon either is like a fact. It's not a big question mark. It's just a fact. Back to where he is then, I don't think he's been in the veil very much. I think that that's quite a bit of a flight. And again, he has to be close to Brennan and Brennan's not going to be going to the heart of Baskaya there. And he can't go to the veil either. I really do think that his dragon has primarily got to be in Orisha because that is where Brennan is. And that is where they are doing most of their mending. So that is my answer to where is Brennan's dragon? Retweet.
0: I hit the retweet. I hit the repost button. Let's talk about the Jack fight. Violet is asking Liam to keep the secret that she's going to be fighting Jack. Now, this makes sense because Violet's not supposed to know that she's fighting Jack. And she doesn't want Zayden. I guess she just doesn't want Zayden to find out that she knows ahead of time. But he already knows. Zayden earlier, he was like, I don't know how you know who you're going to be fighting. So you know who to poison, basically. This is the first time that we really get to see Liam fully as friend, not as just Violet's bodyguard. which, Which makes the like, it's been my honor at the end. This is just the start of what makes that so heart-wrenching.
1: And then, oh, oh my gosh, I'm like literally starting to tear up here like when I'm going to say this line like, and then Violet says, thanks for being a great shadow. I, I need a moment. <laughs> oh my god, I'm going to be dead when this uh, scene happens later on.
0: That episode will be four hours long and one of those hours will be just us weeping into microphones. I'm going to take a hard left turn so I don't absolutely cry off all my mascara right now and that is, Imitario sucks. Imitario is Terrible. It's because he literally has to tell Jack multiple times he's breaking the rules and not just like oh you're breaking the rules jack like you're breaking the rules trying to literally kill her so what's the limit here with sparring is it like three strikes you're out is it just like like bat you on the back of the hand what's the limit here i don't understand i know that they're also like kill each other like we don't care but he does say pull it back barlow
1: like you know he he defends her i believe that when you go up to the mat you have to give it your all and Mm -hmm. that all might accidentally kill somebody, but you do not go in and give it your all trying to kill somebody. That's just kind of like the general guidelines. Now, does everybody abide by those? Absolutely not. We learned that from the very first day on assessment day when Imogen tried to kill Violet and obviously now Jack. So... There are a lot of those tensions, but they're trying to just essentially say like, hey, no, come on, we're all one big team. Oh, shoot, you killed somebody. Well, they didn't really deserve to live anyway, if that was the case. ematerio kind of needs, like, he needs a whistle. If anybody ever needed a whistle, this guy does. So they I wish that him. was his
0: signet. Maybe that was his signet power. Like, just the ability to whistle real good. <laughs> real good. We need to talk about Jack's signet power because yes, this is our this is probably our biggest clue right here. And I'm going to quote this directly from the book. I scream as I'm shaken by an internal force I don't understand, as though he's forcing his own power into my body, shocking me with a thousand stings of vibrating energy. Then Reddick immediately after says he's using his power. So we connect this with his signet power. A lot of people have written to us saying that Jack's signet power has to do with energy or electricity. Chloe messaged us this morning on, or at least at the time of us recording this this morning on Instagram, mentioning how she has a theory that Jack's signet power is pain. And I echo this. I'm actually going to turn it up a notch because I actually wonder if it's torture. The signet is at the core of who you are as a person. That kind of checks in my mind. What are your thoughts
1: though? I First of all, I absolutely love that idea. I had been thinking more along the lines of just like electric energy really like that energy source I didn't get like crucio vibes from it but now that you say that and I reread it it's like definitely see that and um, expanding on that John emailed us like way back in the beginning and theorized that Rebecca is contrasting these two Violet and Jack because they're both violent but where Jack is violent toward others and enjoys it Violet is violent towards those who hurt others. I find it ironic that Jack is killed by lightning, like the far more powerful of the two signets. That's you know, good. think about this, like lightning is across the sky and Violet is fully capable of killing from a far away with a single bolt. His has to touch the person. And it's not a death blow like lightning. Like I'm sure that it can, certainly can be a death blow, but it's not like the, Boom, okay, you're dead. Like Violet's is. So hers is obviously the much more powerful of the two energy electric sort of signets. And I think that him having to touch the person actually does directly tie back to his ability and enjoyment of torturing other people. Violet, if she had that ability, would never, ever, ever use it. Unless it was, of course, on a Venom. That's good, Lex. That was good. Yes. Credit goes to John with that one. (laughs) Thank you, John. John and Chloe, really good theories there. So let's point out that Violet asks Taryn a question a lot of us readers have. Is this she dies, Zayden dies just a hypothesis? Like, I personally was kind of like, wow, you all are really jumping to some conclusions here when Taryn just bonded Violet. And so Taryn does reply that it's not a hypothesis he'd like to put to the test, which is a very fair answer. But again, it is a big assumption that all of these characters are basing their lives off of. And it relies on the strength of Taryn and Violet's very new and supposedly weakest it'll ever be bond.
0: A lot of people are reaching out to us saying that, for instance, if Zayden dies, Sagel dies, Taryn dies, Violet might not die because she still has Indarna. Or if Taryn dies, for instance, she might still not die because of Indarna. We've had a lot of people reach out to us with that theory. There's something happening here. I'm terrified. I... Those core five, Andarna, Taryn, Violet, Zayden, Segale. I pray to God that none of them die. I unfortunately do not think that I am correct here. I do think that minimum one of them is not going to make it out of this series. And that kills me. Wish it weren't true, but I do think it is. I'm really curious. And I wonder if that's going to be like the big twist of like, oh, it didn't happen. But I don't know that that to me kind of feels like, a oh, we hyped you all up and Never mind. I think there's going to be so many more levels to it that will make it like this huge
1: climax of the book series. I think it's very safe to know that if Sigal or Taryn dies, the other one will die. And subsequently, if one of them dies, then their writer automatically dies. Like, we know that. But it does not necessarily mean the chain of events that everyone is basing everything off of here.
0: Let's talk about Zayden taking over. So first and foremost, if a man ever said... I'm taking over everything when it comes to you. I'd hit him Wait, unabashed. No, what the fuck do you think you are? I would slap him in the face. However, if a fictional man says this to me, and I have a very short list of fictional men who can say this to me, and I would immediately get on my knees. <laughs> Not way, no. Not in that way, no. You said well you actually I'm going to I'm going to let that be my private moment thank you god I hope our in-laws and our family don't listen to this <laughs> podcast Moving on. We need to talk about Dane sparring with Liam. So this is a huge controversial moment in the fandom. And it leads to this question. Did Dane read Liam's memories when sparring? So Sophia actually emailed us saying that this might be when Dane learned about Athbane because when Violet learns about Athbane, it's a night after Zayden and Violet fuck for the first time. And it's a While before Dane touches Violet's face next. And it's actually at the reunification party. Sophia brings up this question. It's either recent memories are not so recent anymore by the end of the year, or he learned in a different way, possibly through sparring with Liam. Now, the only way I could see this happening is if Dane does get Liam in the headlock. The more we go into the analysis of this book, the more I'm leaning actually towards that Dane does have to touch someone's face. I don't think it is just touch anyone in general. So I did kind of change my opinion on that. I do wonder if
1: this. Is when he finds out about Athbane. I think it's a possibility and that might be Rebecca's way of saying, hey everybody, Dane is not as bad as we all think. I think that this is a great point and a great hypothesis. And I think that for the sake of our story, the meaningfulness behind it being Dane, who, again, we have that language, cups her face, that is not an accident. And so I think that that is the direct tie. That is Rebecca's way of saying to us in our rereads, you need to watch how often Dane is touching her face. He is reading her memories. There is so much more that has been going on throughout this book with Dane than we ever caught in the first read. Except for you unicorns who who figured it out early. We're not talking to you. You know, there are other people who theorize that the reason why Liam and Dane don't go to the mat until later on is because Liam is not wanting to put himself in a position that Dane could read his memories. I am going to counter that with is that that must be the case for all marked ones. And Emogen, for instance, is also in their squad. The fact that Liam in particular is singled out, not just all marked ones, I think that the marked ones would kind of raise a little bit more question. Like, why are none of them willing to go up against the guy who can read memories? like? Hmm. You think somebody would catch on to that, right? So, so that's my that's my thoughts on that. What if all the marked
0: ones have gotten like extra practice and shielding? Because I could definitely see that being a thing. Oh, I absolutely think so. Yeah. I wonder if that comes into play here where Liam is just having to shield like fucking crazy when he's sparring with Dane, same with Imogen. I don't think she does actually spar with Dane
1: on the page. Correct. She doesn't. But also... Liam also doesn't start sparring with Dane until after he starts channeling, which means that he can now start shielding. That might be a thing where he's not willing to risk it until he knows that he can shield against Dane if they're touching one another. Lexi, well
0: done. Yeah, that's canon. That's canon for me. Amazing. Okay, here's my question, though. So Zayden shows up to his sparring session with, oh, with Violet and has about 12 daggers stashed on his body. Where did he get these daggers? Because did he get them at Risha? He does say, like, I know a guy, basically. But the, it would take days for him to fly to Arisha and back. And again, Taryn and Sigal being separated that long. Does someone in baz
1: just like undercover have a blacksmith? First of all, back to what you were saying about him flying to and from Arisha. You were saying earlier in this episode that he has a room in Arisha. And that's... And but that's going like when there, he's so on vacation.
0: That's like summer break. You, you caught I me think- in my little plot holes here. So I don't
1: think... But he has a room in Arisha. So like he... There's- his home. It was literally his homeland. Exactly. So he already had a room and maybe it's been rebuilt, but it's like his room.
0: And that's to me why he knows Brennan, because I think he went back there for a few years to help rebuild. Because also at the end, he's saying like, we've been rebuilding. He says, we've been rebuilding. So I think that he's been at least rebuilding Eurasia for a few years. I think that he does some more back and forth than we think. Not this year, obviously, because Taryn and Sigale, but I think maybe in prior years, I think he's been in Eurasia more than we think. Now, where did did he get the daggers though. Yeah, I feel like right. I've
1: gotten gotcha. <laughs> but it, but like again, it does pose those really good questions. And and I absolutely do agree with you that he he clearly has been going to Arisha. My big question is just how, like how so that he got them in Arisha was definitely my first thought, too. Or find somewhere else in or not necessarily Arisha. Like you mentioned here, he does say that he's resourceful after three years here at the quadrant. So that leads me to believe there is another person who we haven't met yet. At the writer's quadrant, who's working on the inside with making and providing weapons? Keyword here is making, whether it's a blacksmith or, or whatever that might be. I do not think that this person is Lilith, who is supplying all of these weapons. A lot of people on the internet do theorize that. I am still unsure about where Lilith does lie. I do think that her involvement as a double agent is still up for debate. But as far as who provided these daggers for Zayden to give to Violet, I do think that it is somebody who we have not met yet, but we will meet. Especially once when Zayden is no longer a key person at Vescaias. And he might tell Violet about them So that she now has that inside source as well.
0: That would be so risky for Lilith. And I think she is already doing some risky business shit over here. But like supplying weapons, I feel like she would have a guy who did that for her. Like I don't think that would be her directly if it is coming from her in the first place.
1: The emphasis on making them. Like somebody had to make these daggers. That is somebody who is on the inside in some way, shape, or form working with Zayden. And I think that the person also is probably creating these weapons, too, that they then go and give to the Gryphon Flyers. I'm
0: going to hop on my little hopeless romantic high horse again because the delight that Violet disarming Satan brings me, this is the enemies to lovers section of all books where it's like they know they like each other they maybe have kissed or flirted a, like a lot but it's like this crackling tension and flirtation that just like this undoes me I know that this is a lot of people's like favorite parts too the fact that he says unless you don't know how to handle an opponent on top of you and then she comes back with I know how to handle you on top of me the first time I listened to this I thought she said that in her head but nope she says it out loud and it's even better and I love it so much I don't understand though why he's like you won't like what happens if you push me it's like bro, you know how attracted she is to you. What on earth makes you think that she won't like it and that she won't push you?
1: That was kind of a bit of a line where it's like, what are you you trying to say there, Zayden? I think he's just flirting and I love it.
0: Here's the part that truly just undoes me. And it is the thought of him impatiently waiting on top of her. And it's like literally described as his hips are in between her thighs, which like, We all know what that's supposed to mean. Like she's like plucking daggers off of him and then she like rolls him onto his back. Again, this is the part of the enemies to lovers that I just absolutely love. Now, taking a hard left, the daggers and the runes it stated, this from Violet, it's a shame that there are so many parts of tearish culture that were lost centuries ago during unification, including most runes. This felt very pointed because it's not only the runes here on her
1: daggers, it's also Lilith's dagger that she finds in her office later. And the box, These some of these mysterious boxes, including Liam's family box or something along those lines, has ruins on it as well. Yes. So like they ha- they're going to play a role in the story and I'm just I'm so excited to find out what it means. I need to take just a few moments here again with Dane. You know, things are bad when Violet's definition of Dane finally being supportive of her is when he says to her A signet would be great, you know, if you can maybe make that happen. Like, I I have no words. No, actually, I do. I have a lot of words. The fact that he is encouraging her to have a signet is apparently supportive. Okay, good. He's finally on board with, great, you bonded dragons. Let's make you a writer. Like, let's make you be a good writer. It is in the most condescending way possible. Like, this is not supportive, guys. Like, this is, like, the most bare minimum below the bar. Like, the bar is on the floor here with Dane's supportiveness, and I'm... (laughs) really feel bad for Violet that she's like, oh, that was supportive of him. It's like, holy shit, girl, wake up up. It really makes you wonder what their relationship was when they were kids. Like, what friendship was this? Or it shows, like, how bad things have gotten over these last nine months where her idea of him supporting her is him not actively trying to get her out of the writer's quadrant. I am also convinced that something happened last year when Dane was a first year and Zayden was a second year, and that there's more than just prejudice with the rebellion and, and with Violet involved between the two of them. What if, you know, like, it could be something a little bit more on, like, the trivial side of things, like Zayden just whooped Dane's ass on the mat and just completely humiliated him. God, I hope. I don't want to go here, but maybe Zayden killed or severely hurt one of Dane's buddies and that made Dane like extra hate him, right? From from that prejudice of who Zayden already is, being Fenriderson's son and being a marked one, that just really proved his point that he is the bad guy that Dane believes that he is. I could see that.
0: I could also just see like, since Dane is so brainwashed by leadership to hate the rebellion and the marked ones and stuff, I could just see it being just like inherently ingrained in him hatred. Zayden holding the door open for Violet. I'm going to make this short, but I think that this is just a really important moment. It says the motion is so easy that I know it's not only practiced but second nature. You know, we've been tagged in a lot of videos, and one of them is saying that Zayden might become just like another very hated character in fantasy literature. And it's moments like this. It's moments like the 107 scars on his back. I'm not here to say like it is this way because I do think that there's so many possibilities in all of the theories that we've seen in this book. But this is the only one where I'm like, I'm. think I might die on this hill that I cannot see Zayden becoming a hated character in that way now if he is an intrinsic and he's been betraying Violet by reading her memory I do think that's a whole other conversation but the the motion is so easy it's practice it's second nature like that says that like this is who
1: he is at his core and also who his dad is at his core because he's the one who taught him it's just another nod to his close relationship with his dad which isn't such a stark difference to Violet's relationship with her mom that is on full display just a few pages later. Let's talk about it. So
0: Violet and Zayden are walking to the flight field and they run into none other than Colonel Atos and Panchek. He's like off in the corner. It's so weird because this guy seems like such a dad like he's like nice flight lines Violet like I would 100% see our dad making this joke he to was. Us. like yeah he just he's such a dad and he's so seemingly caring about far more than Lilith far more caring about Violet than Lilith it's dropped that Dane has been talking to his dad about Violet being in his squad this to me also does make me think like what else has he been talking to his dad about has he also been talking to his dad about other things we don't know but that was just a clue for me this also makes me wonder what is Dane's dad's signet Like, I feel like we haven't learned for a reason. I know I said on the bonus Iron Flame excerpt episode that it's like, absolutely not. Colonel Atos no way will be the new vice commandant. But the more I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I do want it to be a new character. I do hope that is the case. But I'm also like, if it was Dane's dad, I don't know if I'd be entirely pissed off because that hard left from like this, you know, super dad to... Being this total evil character in the next book might be kind of delicious and spicy, and I love that.
1: I have no idea what his signet would be, but especially like for instance, Lilith is storms, and then Violet's is lightning. Now, of course, that has nothing to do with her other siblings' signets either, but there could be like a lineage, you know, like a generational yeah. connection between. I, I don't know. I don't know. That's, I'd that's be curious thing to think about.
0: Let's talk about Lilith taking some capital L's. So, telling her daughter that if she doesn't get a signet, all that power would be quote squandered woof yeah that's a
1: bad bad look mom it's times like these that to me just reinforce that she's that she isn't a double agent you know there's obvious tension between her and Zayden I do not think that they are actively working together do I think that her character is way more complicated and she's got some secrets absolutely but not necessarily in this oh, I'm secretly working with Zayden to help the rebels kind of way.
0: I don't think she's necessarily working with Zayden. I do think that there was some stuff with her father being killed that Lilith now does not agree with leadership in that way. I don't know if she's entirely on the rebellion. This is where I see like that Snape character, like where she's, you know, kind of the back and forth, that type of double agent, but not necessarily working directly with Zayden because that just doesn't really check for me. But her not agreeing with leadership and not believing in what they believe in, that I could see.
1: Or just throwing out the other theory is that she is part of the leadership that brought down the dad. And she had Violet go into the writer's quadrant not to protect her, but to make sure that she did not find out the same stuff that their dad did. I see so
0: many different outcomes and I, I just, I don't have my feet planted on either side of the fence. Now, there are a lot of notes about Lilith looking at Violet's hair throughout the book, which I do find kind of like a weird connection with like how Zayden's so obsessed with her hair and like her mom is also, that that to me is just, that's not like necessarily connecting Lilith and Zayden. That's giving us a neon sign, like something is up with Violet's hair. That's more what I'm taking And, from and
1: contrasting feelings about her hair. Lilith says she needs to cut it. It shows that she's weak while Zayden is like, oh, I love your hair. I love your
0: hair. <laughs> I do wonder, like, why is Lilith so pissed off at Violet for her hair? It, th- there's some story here that we don't know.
1: I agree. And I'll go a step further. And there is absolutely a connection between the silver hair and these types of silver scars that we see throughout the story, both on Zayden and at the very <sighs> end on Violet herself. So again, that brings in the theory about a Avenin being the reason that her mom was sick when she was pregnant with Violet. And that is why she has the silver. It's like traces of that venin or like the venin had pulled that from her in a way that these scars do.
0: I feel like such a dunce realizing for the first time that the silver on her hair is like the silver in the scars. I feel so stupid for just now making that
1: connection. But that like really just dawned on me. And there's a certain kind of blade which they use against the venin that has those kind of scars. <laughs> Who knows? I love this. So like father,
0: like son, we have to talk about Dane's dad taking L's. How dare you Colonel Atos how dare you ask to study our precious Endarna. God I hope that if he is the big bad in the next books I hope to God that he does not get his hands on her because I will riot pitchfork fire I will do whatever it takes but if he gets his hands on Endarna and studies her with I just
1: what? I know I really hope that he doesn't get his hands on her And I hope the new vice commandant, whether that's him or or a new character who I think it is, that I hope that nobody touches her. And she's huge now, too. So there's all True. of that speculation, which I'm not going to touch quite yet. But I do want to point out again here, but I do believe that the scene here is when Dane's dad then goes to Dane and has him get info on Zayden through Violet. Because he and her mom, they can see right here that Violet and Zayden, like, quote unquote, have to spend time together. It's beyond just bonded dragons, like, which they already know. But it's like, oh, like, their bonded writers are spending time together, too. The marked ones are already on Basquiat leadership's radar. They're looking for opportunities to bring writers, especially the most powerful one who is personally responsible for all the others, down. What a great opportunity to just bring them down. Boom. Here, Violet is on a silver platter. If it did happen before this, I think Dane would have acted more on the information that he would have gotten that we could assume that he has received. We've received so many great theories and insights about who knew what and what the plan was later for the war games. But here and now in this moment is when I think that light bulb really went up for Dane's dad. And you
0: make a good point about with Andarna being quote, fucking huge now. I'm assuming she's not a feather tail anymore. I'm also assuming she's not a baby dragon anymore. So I don't think that they can study her in the next book unless they want to study her for being a golden dragon and being very unique, which, you know, brings it back to our Andarna is royal theory.
1: And this perfectly segues into our next part here, which is Holy moly, we just got a lot of info that in a very small stretch of dialogue, right? So Dane's dad says that they have had the scribes researching anything that they can get their hands on about feather tails. But, but the only thing they could find was hundreds of years old. We're going to put a pin in that right now. I was listening to this when I was at the grocery store and I was like, my mouth was hanging open. And I like start pulling out my phone, like taking notes real quickly. Oh my gosh, yes.
0: So there's a quote that says, and I'm going to read this word for word because this is really important. Which is funny because I remember your father doing a bit of research about the second Kavorlan uprising. And he mentioned something about feather tails, but we can't seem to find that tone home. Dun, dun,
1: dun. I searched the book, my, my ebook search feature where I just like so clutch for any other hints about this second Croveland uprising. It's which is Croveland is the southern region in poor I did find this way back when they were uh, doing the first gauntlet practice orally, R.I.P. my girl, confirmed that her brother is with the Southern Wing and, quote, pretty much desecuted for all the action they see near the Croveland border. But, not consistent with what we're learning, the border is where all this secretive action is. It's like, you know, Somerton, Penn and Athbine and and other battles that we learn about throughout this book. There's a big reason here that this is not adding up. I bet you we learn about it in Iron Flame. Again, going back to that big secret that Musgaeth is hiding.
0: This is where it really takes it up a notch on, wow, we do not know everything. Because Violet says she knows exactly where her father's notes are. She says, and I quote, in the one location he spent the majority of his after hours time. She doesn't say where it is, which is Rude, Rebecca. Rude. That is a rude line. I'm mad at you for that. For So many questions come from this. Where was his after hours time? Because we're assuming it's not the archives. What information does he have? Was he in the veil studying baby dragons? Which then ties it in episode two there's that mention that Professor Kaori is talking about the Vale, no one's been there, and the redheaded marked one pulls down her sleeve to hide her Rebellion relic. So we think that maybe there's some tie-in with the people in the Rebellion and being in the veil, but if he, her dad, was also in the veil, then would he be connected to the Rebels? There are just so many possibilities here
1: and I am freaking out. <laughs> I am still in the camp that only dragons can go to the veil. But I am just dying to know more about his research, especially then Violet's mom looks at her with expectation. I think that she knows way more than she'd ever let on in this moment. And she's seeing how much Violet really does know or is willing to share. This begs another question. If these notes were super important to Violet, do you think she would have gone to retrieve them wherever this after hours place is? If so, if she did want to go and retrieve them, then does that mean that his after hours location is not nearby? But it would have to be it would have because to they be. lived in Biscayus. I am going to predict that we are going to go to this location in the next book and it's going to tie into this big Biscayus secret. I've said it before and I will continue saying it. It is not a coincidence that number one, Violet's dad was studying feather tails and no one can find the research, but Violet does know where it is. Number two, Violet's dad read her the book of fables, which is a forbidden book, and wrote her this cryptic note saying it only takes one generation to rewrite history. Number three, her dad dies and Violet is now forced into the writer's quadrant. Number four, the words are faltering. Number five, Venon are back and gaining power. And number six, fewer dragons are bonding so there's something going on with the dragons and number seven and darna a feather tail broke all the rules and bonded violet the daughter of the man who was uncovering secrets like no way is this all a coincidence and i know i'm forgetting a few here too. yeah
0: like this is what we're supposed to be doing as readers going into this next book we're supposed to be looking at all of this and being like you know that meme with the guy and like all the red string behind him and like pointing in the background like ugh. like that's what we're supposed to be doing like where are the lines connecting all of these
1: there's so many questions Wait, hold on do you not watch it's always sunny in philadelphia did you not know what that meme is from nicole i don't, I don't. I'm sorry i didn't i didn't know that you're missing out on charlie oh my gosh i, know I watch fantasy I, know.
0: I just watched Geralt of rivia over and over and over again that's all i do do you not know about the day man the who man day man
1: fighter of the night man i'm disappointed my some sister here
0: <laughs> sister stuff. yeah because we're not doing enough sister stuff right now we can't have any more hobbies like this is this is it we're maxed out moving on to the squad battle challenges so really quickly here's what's included in the squad battle it's a race up the gauntlet it's sparring competition it's flight sky races and then whatever task the wing leaders decide
1: And so we know from the Book of Brennan that the squad battle indeed does matter. The commandant, the professors, the commanding officers, they are all watching to see who rises and who falls.
0: So the last challenge... Is quote this is after Liam just absolutely eviscerates everyone on the mat. They're in I think third place right now. Our second squad is in third place, something like that. So the last challenge is find and acquire by any means necessary the one thing that would be the most advantageous to our enemies regarding the war effort. When asked what the boundaries are, it's anything within the walls of Basgaieth. My question is, how the fuck is this allowed? Especially since they break into Lilith's office and. Especially since the weight in this world on security clearance is so heavy, how is this allowed? How is this okay?
1: It's like and like all of these secrets that leadership is obviously hiding again, like a huge theme of this book and especially this particular episode here. like so I will say this. I love that this challenge it's not linked to their strength but rather their strategy and their ability to plan and work together. It's about how they work together as a unit, their stealth mission and what that looks like. It's about their strategic planning and their creativity, too. And it's about thinking like the enemy. And, of course, our girl Violet totally owns this challenge. And it is just, you know, so up her alley. And she takes the real strategic lead here. While Imogen is kind of like the leader of the squad, she's really kind of the mastermind behind their plan. And I just love that this challenge represents Violet's strengths. Back to this gigantic gaping plot hole that you were mentioning. I am going to chalk this up to some Harry Potter plot points where it doesn't make logical sense, but it just moves the story along. Like as my brother-in-law calls it, sometimes entertaining is more important than accuracy. Mm. And I think we might just have to have to accept that in this case. That does beg the question now. I
0: need to know what in Harry Potter, in your opinion, makes more logical sense than it does just like to move the story along.
1: I think most of Sorcerer's Stone is (laughs) has some seriously gaping plot points. I could go on and on, but like that like the second half of that
0: book, pretty much. That's amazing. Okay, so I wanna ask, what do you think of this line? It says Imogen can wipe recent memories, and then she butts in with, "And I'm fast." And Violet, in her mental commentary, says something she has in common with Satan. So, do we know that this is a lesser magic, or is this a second signet? Lexi is chopping at the bit. Just take the mic, Lexi.
1: <laughs> so, like, buckle up, my friends, because we this is a record scratching moment cosmos one of our very first emailers it is our time so cosmos sent us this reddit theory about imogen and her memory wiping signet and this is like literally this reddit post is practically a full dissertation from (laughs) what the frenchie does so i'm just gonna call you frenchie here because you frenchie are my new best friend if you are listening to this podcast which i hope you are May I just say, what a masterful essay, like gold star for you. We're going to link it in the show notes because I'm going to summarize it because it really is long. I'm just going to summarize it and look at the kind of the main points of it. But there's a lot more to it. What the hell? Imogen Signet is wiping memories and it's just like so casually dropped in one line in this entire book. Like that is so suspicious because Violet has very specific memories when it comes to learning about Riddick. Rhiannon and Sawyer's signets, but none about learning about Emogens. Shoot, even about Quinn's. Like pretty much everybody else, we have this memory of her learning about it in some way, shape, or form. Violet knows about Imogen's signet, but we can also maybe infer she doesn't have any memories on how she knows it, which is pretty out of character for her. So Violet has thought about how Dane is allowed to live as this type of intrinsic because he can be controlled by leadership with his ability being limited to touch. But none of her, meaning Violet, thinking about why Imogen is also allowed to exist with this mind-altering ability, knowing that she is a marked one that leadership already does not trust. So I did just think about this. I don't think that Emogen has a patch that marks her signet as a secret or classified like Danes does. She just straight up doesn't have one. Now, Frenchie does go on in this Reddit essay, the reason why Zayden and the other marked ones don't have their signet patches is because it's a way to protect Imogen from anyone noticing that she does not have her patch. I love that idea. I am more in the camp that Zayden pretty much tells them, don't broadcast what your signet is because of his secrecy and and how he wants the marked ones to feel like that. But that's something to consider. Knowing how leadership feels about Intensics and the marked ones, I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that they would have killed Imogen after finding out about her ability to wipe memories. Now, true, it is not the same as reading memories or thoughts like the Intensic that we associate with Jeremiah or even Dane. So what if Imogen is wiping memories as soon as people find out about it? So we do know, or we can assume, that she uses this mind-wiping power when they're at Montserrat. We'll get to that when we get to that stretch of chapters there. But I just, like, I love noodling on this. Now, I see a few theory holes with with this, because if Imogen's been wiping Violet's memory of learning about her ability, but Violet still stores that knowledge, which is how she just kind of knows in the offhanded line, The same would have to apply for anyone else who learns about her signet and then it's wiped and they would still know about it, right? So leadership, even if their memories have been wiped or anyone else's memories have been wiped about learning about it, they would still have the same knowledge like Violet does. Unless she can, like, pick
0: and choose the depth of wiping it out. Like, that's the big thing for me. Like, with leadership, she could just be like, nope, skip, buzzing that out of your system. Versus Violet, she's like, just little,
1: little light zap. I just find that theory so fascinating because, again, it is such an offhanded line. And and later on in Montserrat, there's a lot of hints that she uses her power in that way. And I have to wonder how that works within Best Gaieth, because I really do think that leadership would not let her have this mind wiping ability because I don't think that that's limited just to touch like it is with Danes and I don't think that leadership would let her just have this ability either but it's also not like reading their actual thoughts so it's not as much of a security risk I don't know I don't know but I had to share that theory it's a really good one please go check it out on Reddit. And Frenchie, love you if you're listening to this. Okay, so back to the question, the original question about whether being fast is her second signet. I don't think I'm convinced that her speed is a second signet per I'm not either. Se. I do wonder if these marked ones, or at least some of them, have amplified power with their lesser magic, like speed. We know that speed is considered a lesser magic because of their relics. Think of Zayden, think of Garrick, think of Emogen. Now, they could just be super badass at what they do, but I do think that their relics, whether it's give them more power or something along those lines, there. Now we have to address Liam with his second signet that we actually did see. Ice wielding, he did that in the final battle, but we know that his primary signet, I'll call it, is farsight. We have to acknowledge... Ice wielding is pretty common and it is also considered its own signet. That's a whole other question. I'm going to put a pin in that for now. But I feel like if emogen's signet is being fast, this is going to sound mean, but like I think that she would be faster than she is, right? Like, no, I, I agree. I like, agree. Maybe if it's, it's like the subdued second signet or I think it's more likely that it's a more powerful lesser magic. I'm going to throw another possibility out here is that these lesser magics are magnified for some of our marked ones because they may have access to Poromiel's unique crystalline gems, which we know are capable of amplifying minor magic. Hmm... Do you think that those are located in these mountain ranges that where all these ratings are happening? Lexi, you are blowing my fucking mind right now. Oh, my God. Well, I cannot take cre- like full credit here for the crystalline gems yeah. now. I, I definitely thought that to myself. But there are a lot of theories about that that we will be diving into as we continue seeing this pop up. But I wonder if those somehow have something to do with this as well, where they have access to these gems and therefore their ma- lesser magics are... Amplified. So I totally agree with you. I don't think that it is a full second signet because then that would also be a full second
0: signet for Zayden, and he's he's our male main character. I don't think he would just have like a oh I'm fast as his second signet. I think it's going to be something mind blowing, whether that is intensic or something totally different. But I love this idea that their lesser magic is amplified. Well, and also doesn't Liam have some connection to the crystals? Like, doesn't he have some at, at his family home? I wonder if that's like all marked ones or if that's just the Mari family. I don't know, but
1: oh my god, I cannot wait to learn more about this. This is amazing. I I will say Liam's family, we know that their home has to be located kind of by where the execution was, which was just in a different providence. He would be essentially on the opposite side of Tyrandor Providence from where these crystals would be. The geography isn't really matching up there either, right? So again, lots of questions. Lots 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 of of questions. questions. Lots of questions.
0: Speaking of questions, let's talk about the massive download that we get in Lilith's office. So first and foremost, they break in and she finds a dagger on Lilith's desk. And our girl Violet is so smart, but this is a dumb violet moment where she has for a second. The dagger is described as alloy infused hilt and what looks to be a tearish rune in the handle that she must be using as a letter opener or something. I
1: think that it's a f- like why would she have any further knowledge than than just what that is? It's like oh that's a really cool dagger but my mom's obviously not actually using it for battle so huh must make a really good letter opener.
0: I think that, that like I would think about
1: the 12 daggers that Zayden
0: just gave me and how it was heavy with meaning, like how she's thinking about the tearish runes and how it's a bummer that that got lost to society and like how Tirandor, you know, like she knows all the stuff about Tyrindor. And then she's just like, oh yeah, this tearish dagger has zero meaning to my mom. She just uses it as something mundane as a letter opener. But this is actually one of the daggers that can kill venom. This is an immediate clue to us that Lilith knows the venom are still alive. Now, there are three missives on Lilith's desk, and we unfortunately only read two of them. But missive number one, we learn that the raids around Athbane, which is beyond the safety of the wards, this is where they're sent for the war games with Satan and his crew, the raids have spread the wing too thin. This missive is requesting reinforcements, and it says, quote, we cannot adequately relay how dire the situation is here. This is the blind eye that they are turning on the people in Athbane and just beyond the wards in general. This is also not being talked about in Battle Brief. This is like neon.
1: Alarms go off like crazy. Uh, well, and then also the missive does say like like that they may be forced to abandon it. And so I think that it was already abandoned when Zayden's group went in for the war games. That they was not abandoned because they were going, but it was more of a hey, this is super convenient. They weren't sent away because Zayden was coming, but that is partly why Zayden's crew was sent there because it was already going to be abandoned. there's a lot of other questions about how they knew about the Venom being there and all that. I'm not going to touch on that right now, but good things to keep in mind. Now, of course, we also know that Zayden was going to Athlane for his midnight ride, which, first of all, it's really far away. So I'm a little bit confused about how he managed to go back and forth in whatever time frame. Like, I know that Violet's like, oh, well, people get sent off to, like, to drop things off at outposts and stuff. But it's far, right? It's It's like a seven, eight-hour flight. So was Zayden supplying the Griffin Flyers and their people with supplies and weapons? that then are what raided the Navarian citizens. I think about this. The lengths that Zayden and his friends go through to protect innocent people at the end of the book, I I would have a hard time believing that they are aiding the raiders, or at least not purposefully aiding these raiders here but rather aiding them to go up against the venom. Much more on this here in today's archive section.
0: So then there's missive number two, which is protests around conscription laws that are growing around Tyrandor. So Tyrandor is a huge province and provides the majority of conscripts to, quote, replenish the front lines, we cannot afford to lose the support of the people again. That again is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. In this missive, the lieutenant offers the idea of making more defensive outposts around Tyrandor to help morale and help the Tyrish feel like they are supported, which will encourage them to defend the kingdom and go into conscription easier. Then she says, please consider this solution as an alternative to suppressing the unrest with force
1: yikes Lilith Sorengale yeah so I read this as that's you know, going in with force is General Thornton-Kale's plan and the lieutenant is preferring like, wait, 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 hold up. Let's talk about a different, more supportive method here. I think, again, like that's that hardened general that Lilith is. If the high altitude is where they have the fewest number of outposts because Griffins can't scale the Cliffs of trailer, like that's what we've learned here. Is that why all of these high altitude raids are so frequent and detrimental? Because there aren't enough outposts to defend against all of these attacks. How are the Griffins suddenly managing to go to these high altitude places? Like, or is it Griffins? I do think it is.
0: I do wonder if it's like, a shit's getting so real, we have to do whatever it takes. There also might be things that we don't know. God, there's so many questions. Now, speaking of questions, as Violet is reading this missive, she like turns around and she sees the map and she gets the idea. And then they take the map and leave. But there were three missives on Lilith's desk. So there was another one that we didn't read and it kills me because I want to know what it is so
1: badly, but obviously we have no idea. So there's been a lot of questions among fourth wing fans about the consequences of this map and all of the super secret info that's being hidden from the writer's quadrant. And while they absolutely do have a point, let's remember what this map does show. It shows current outposts of Navarian wings, including troop strength of infantry battlements and current skirmishes, which is like attacks, in the last 30 days. Now, it does not give the same details that, for instance, these missives do. Or Professor Markham's scroll that we never learned about in Battle Brief. So, like, yes, we do get way more info with the current activity represented here on the map. And everyone is stunned, right, when they do this presentation. But I don't think it gives the whole secret away because there's just so much more context. Plus, the map is hanging in the general's office. That would be a pretty irresponsible thing for her to do, to have this full, like, look at all of our secrets here, right here, everybody. Yes, the map does provide more information, but not all of the information. And that is why the writers are rushing forward and the professors battling to get ahead of them to hide what is being revealed, showing them how much more activity there is than the battle briefs offer. And then we learn nothing more about it in the story. (laughs) yet. I do wonder how did they get the map back because they steal it, but like how do they get it
0: back into Lilith's office? It's
1: where like the professors come back like hey <laughs> How does her mom find out that they broke in? Like, what is her reaction? Is she okay with it? Because like, you know, it's just part of the war games. Violet does reflect that there's going to be no mercy if they're caught. So where is her mom's reaction? Again, does she find out? I have like, I want to know. And it's just kind of like cut to the next thing. Okay, we're not going to talk about that anymore.
0: There's so many questions. Like, again, like going back to your your Harry Potter example. Like, there's so many things about this where I'm like, how, 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 how? But I do love this chapter because I think it's so cool and it's so fun. And I love the moment where Zayden like tips his hat to Violet and she just like is like, I already won. Ah, that just makes me so happy. But things that don't make me happy, it is time for my favorite section of the podcast, which is... God fucking damn it, Dane. This is where we look at all of the moments that Dane cups Violet's face and we speculate about what the heck he wanted to know in that moment. So there's not a whole lot of Dane in the start of chapters, thank God, but there is one moment that he does cup her face. However, right before For this moment, he has an an almost oopsie. I'm almost gonna call it. So there's this moment where he reaches up to try, and then he brings it down. So here's what's happening in this situation. They're talking about the amber thing. Then he's like, "I can't believe you didn't tell me, Violet." And she's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" But this is also right after they're talking about Zayden being in Violet's room to kill all of the intruders, and she has this moment where she's like, "Not because he was, you know, there or anything, or like there to begin with." And I'm just like girl show your hand why don't you but then he says you have every reason to hate him him meaning Zayden quote reaching for me before thinking better of it and drawing his hand back I think this like almost oopsie moment is literally him being like I'm so used to reading Violet's memories this is autopilot Mm, nope don't do that Dane. don't do that she's still (laughs) pissed at you she's still pissed (laughs) at you but I do think he wanted to know what was the situation where Zayden is the person who was called in to see that moment with her. Like, I I do think that he was trying to see, like, what does Zayden have in all of this? However, a few moments later, like, maybe two pages. (laughs) It's very quick. He has distracted her with talking about Zayden and having secrets. And he's not so subtly putting, like, total doubt in her brain, like manipulative ass that he is. But finally, he's siding with her, kind of. He's like, okay, Violet, how can I argue with someone who has two badass dragons? Then he leans in to cut
1: Cup her face. God fucking damn it. Dane! It's super important wording there with cupping her face. We've talked about this before and we're saying it again. I really do think that that is very purposeful language. It is a telltale sign that it means that he's reading a memory there. I think this is the moment where he was like, okay, that thing I was going to read earlier, but I totally thought better
0: of it. I'm going to read it now. But here's just like the... "Mm -hmm." Dane, while he still has his hand on her face, he says... Quote, I'm sorry for not asking for the memory.
1: Wow. <laughs> like only then is when he drops his hand to her shoulder and it's like he's making her feel good like he's finally like on her team as he is betraying her so while I absolutely think that he is reading her memory both in this instance and most other instances that we do go over throughout the book I have to ask why wouldn't he see Violet and Zayden's kiss in this instance like because it was just the night before right I'm not getting the consistency in his memory reading
0: if he is also reading like how did Zayden play into to the whole amber situation that was months ago it does beg the question how recent is recent like we don't know how recent recent is and we've talked to to a lot of you guys in the community about this because this is like the big question how recent is recent when it comes to recent memories for Dane
1: I do think that we can safely assume it is at least a month and that is because when he does get the memory from Violet that Zayn has been going to Athbane when Dane gets that information from Violet that is only on reunification day which is more than a month after After Zayden told Violet this information. So I think that we can safely say that recent memories equal at least a month here. But we're talking about something that happened just last night. So that is not really relevant to the conversation. We've wondered this in the past and I'll bring it up again is there might be a possibility that with Violet and her dragons, that Dane is not able to see into what's going on with the dragons. That, that Maybe that can explain why he doesn't know more about Andarna. Um, especially maybe maybe Dane's dad is like, hey, can you find out anything on Andarna from Violet? And Dane's like, oh yeah, sure. And then he's not able to see anything because like the dragon magic is blocking that. I don't know. I'm just throwing that possibility out there but that still is not an explanation for the kiss here. I can't, well, I can't excuse that. To
0: go back to Sophia, who emailed us her earlier point, if Dane did find out about Athbane through Liam and their sparring, if that is how he found out about Athbane, I don't know, because it it would make no sense that he wouldn't figure out the kiss unless he was doing his Google searching and he was searching Zayden around the Amber situation, all the, like, how did he get into a room that night, all that kind of stuff. I do think that the dragon magic is a play here because or else he would have known everything about Andarna but if he's doing his Google search and he's going way way back maybe he just like typed in the wrong SEO into Google so if that is the case if he was wanting to know how did Zayden get into Violet's room that night how did Zayden know that Violet was in danger what's this connection that they have if there is a blind spot for a dragon magic it would make sense that that's how he does not know about Andarna and the whole you know family powwow that they have later that night so maybe he just overshot and didn't see the kiss because he didn't type it into
1: violet google and they might even be evolving because he's learning how to harness them better and he's gaining more power so that's a whole other wild card that's but. so terrifying okay so we do have a total touch count
0: so face count throughout this stretch it's only one totally now in nine total face touches only all other touchings so shoulders knees and toes all that kind of stuff there was only one other in this section and he just touches her shoulder later on in, in that stretch which means all other touching is at 19 which equals all of the total touching up until chapter 25 28 that's a lot of touching dane it's
1: a lot yes, of touching It is, and we're not done yet <laughs> <laughs> not even close let's go on to this book sections foreshadowing because there's a lot that we haven't even mentioned yet
0: there is so much liam's death foreshadowing. First and foremost, Violet saying that Jacenia is a long-term relationship kind of gal. Unfortunately, Liam will not have a long-term relationship with Jacenia. I hope he gets at least one night with his girl. I hope at least one night. That's all I hope for. Also, quote, not everyone is in a quadrant where death is less of a chance and more of a foregone conclusion. This is Violet saying that to Liam, again, his foregone conclusion is the conclusion of this book. Also, quote, this is Violet to Liam, what did you want to be when you grow up? And he says, alive.
1: (laughs) Oh, and then Liam wants to carve in Darna, but he hasn't been around her long enough. And once when, you know, he does finally have that chance, he has the wood carving It's the very last thing Violet ever gets from him. It's his parting gift to her. And then Liam says to Violet,
0: someone should know, someone should remember. I love that he's saying this to Violet in the archives, which we do associate with Jacinia, who is our writer, our narrator of this book. She is the someone who knows. She is the someone who remembers and passes it on through generations.
1: And then when Liam hints at what Zayden did as the eldest for the 107 marked children, we only get like a little carrot stick, you know, dangled in front of us. And then we learn about that much later in the book.
0: We also get from Ree, you'd think that guy owes Ryerson his life or something. Yes, Ian quite literally does. Lilith mentioning about Violet's company, aka Zayden, being questionable. Zayden comes back with, I've always felt that we resolved any of those questions years ago. This of course is referring to the scars on his back. However, this could also be referring to many other things that we just don't know.
1: I am absolutely convinced that there is so much more to their dynamic and Zayden's deal with S. than we know so far.
0: There's a moment where Violet is talking about the burning of Erasha and it's the capital of Tyrandor, which we learn. And she says it never sat well with her. This is huge for not only Iron Flame, but I'm assuming the rest of the books as well. Obviously, Erasha did get burned. It has been mended, quote unquote, and is being rebuilt currently. But I love that it never sat well with her because I'm assuming she's going to spend a lot of time in Orisha. So I'm glad that it never sat well with her and she gets to experience the city all like glowed up and new. One last Liam one to really just twist the knife in us. Liam says she, meaning Sloane, is only a year younger than me, and I'll get to see her when she enters the quadrant next year.
1: No, you won't. A student answers Professor DeVera about the historic battle that it was equipped with the first crossbowl, which proved lethal against dragonkind. Oh, there is far too much mention of crossbolts in this book, and I am getting major Game of Thrones Season 8 vibes here. Big
0: crossbow. I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. Why right? that's and, what and kills either in Darn. Don't say it. Darn it. Don't you I'm dare so say it. Taking it back. And take it back.
1: And take it back. In that same conversation, they are talking about a historic battle. This historic battle that they're talking about, it was the final battle where griffins and dragons worked alongside one another. Well, that does happen once again at the end of this book. Dragons and griffins work alongside their writers and flyers to defeat the Venom.
0: Jack Motherfucking Barlow says to Violet, "Shouldn't you have twice?" the ability to channel with two dragons what a good question jack and it is fueling a fandom right now that question alone jack also shoving the orange away from him when his friend offers him some he's like do you want me to end up in the infirmary well our smart cookie violet literally sees that and says oh he's allergic to oranges and uses them as a weapon (laughs)
1: incredible and he's just such a loudmouth. like he has no idea he just gave himself away you know who would never do that Zayden. Zayden Zayden would never, ever give himself away like that. Speaking of which, when teaching Violet how to shield, Zayden mentions the top of his favorite hillside near what's left of Arisha and how it feels like home. And, yep, well, it's not just, like, what's left of Arisha. It's being rebuilt, and he so very carefully and strategically left that very important piece out. And I do wonder if we're going to get a scene of the two of them on that hillside. I could really see that, like, at the opening of Iron Flame, and I was kind of, like, showing her where he's told her about, and she's just like, I am so fucking mad at you. Or I could see it, you know, further down in the books being kind of like a symbolic place of his home. God, I hope for that scene. I, I would
0: die for that scene. Rihanna mentions to Violet that she is going to be the most powerful writer of their generation. We obviously haven't fully seen that yet. Like, we're getting massive hints. Like, she's by far the best shielder. We've talked about that in the episode and so on and so forth. But it's only a matter of time before this really comes to fruition.
1: And I do truly think that this is going to be a central part of the entire plot of this Empyrean series is... Yeah. Her being the most powerful writer of her generation and her journey along with the dragon's culture, you know, like an an evolution, so to speak. Or a revolution, as Brennan would
0: put it. But this is a quote from Violet's inner monologue. She says, I wouldn't wish the look Zayden levels Dane with on my worst enemy. Well, soon Dane will be outright an enemy of yours, or at least you'll finally fucking know about it. And then last but not least, this is from Emery. This quote says, scribes freak me out. Quiet little know-it-alls acting like they can make or break someone by writing something down. And even Violet says in retort, there's more truth to that statement than most people realize. And what they write down is important. See Fen Ryerson and our Rebellion Archive section in episode two. Yes, indeed. And in fact,
1: today's episode as well. of oh, you. you have archive of which, today's archives topic is notably confusing for a lot of readers. So before we dive into the current state of Navarre vs. Poramil War, I want to address what some call bad world building and defend the info sharing or lack thereof in this book. Yes, we don't know a lot about the war going on, and it feels like it's just in the background of our story when it should be more front and center. My friends, all all I can say is this is book one of five. So... (laughs) Let's cut Rebecca like a tiny bit of slack here because what's more, we primarily get only one person's very limited point of view. The whole point here is that there is so much about the war being hidden from these writers that we've talked endlessly about in this podcast and especially in today's episode. And Mira, for instance, equivalents it to a healer who doesn't need to know the status of other healers' patients. Even writers out in the field don't have the full picture. This is also because leadership is strategic about concealing information. They've been doing this for centuries. So... Is it weird that the military school is receiving such little information about what they'll face? Yes, the answer is absolutely yes. But it is consistent with what leadership is trying to hide. So it's just tied into the point of the series plot. So book one is purposefully not focused on the war. This was our setup book focused on our hero's journey. Now Violet, she's ready to learn more information about the war. And subsequently, so are we as readers. This is kind of like being mad after reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone because you don't know why Voldemort targeted Harry in the first place. (laughs) We don't learn that until the end of book five. Or here's another example what the White Walker's motivation is after Game of Thrones, like the first book of the series, which we, we still don't okay know. know that because has not finished his books. But you get the point. Let's just take a chill pill. And now let's discuss what we do know about the current state of the war, understanding that we only know this from Violet's lens. Navarre's military approach and current state of the war. First of all, who is Navarre at war with? Their neighboring kingdom, Poromiel. They have been at war for over 400 years, and Purimil is smaller, mostly east of Navarre, with three providences. Which I'm going to have Nicole pronounce because I suck at pronouncing. <laughs> Krovla, Bravik, and Signison. Griffins are part lion, part kind of like eagle feather, brown feathered creatures here. They are from Purimil and, like dragons, can channel powers to their riders. Griffin riders, however, are called flyers. And groups of griffins and their flyers are called drifts. So it's like, oh, a drift just came in and raided us. That means griffins and their flyers came in and raided. So dragons are more powerful than griffins, and therefore the powers that they channel also make riders more powerful than flyers. And dragons are the only ones capable of powering the wards around Navarre. Speaking of which, Navarre's primary defense is these dragon channel wards around the kingdom. These wards make all other non-dragon magic, including griffins and venom magic, Impossible within these wards. More on these wards and their magic in a future episode's archive section. Without these wards protecting Navarre, to quote Violet, we'd be fucked. It would be open season on Navarian villages when the raiding parties from Poromiel inevitably descend. We'll get to these raiding parties in a few moments, but just needed to pull that out just to really show what Navarians think would happen if they did not have their wards. Navarre has defensive outposts along its borders that are frequently under attack, especially recently along the southern borders, which are mostly mountain villages, as the wards are weakening. Now, it's my understanding that there are fewer outposts here because of the high altitude, and that's because griffins aren't supposed to be able to easily access these areas, but that's also where the attacks are most active right now. We know that at least at the eastern outposts, there are 12 riders stationed there. So 12 writers and their dragons. They send the most powerful dragons and their writers where it's most active. In the past, writers have been called into service before graduation. Only third years who have shadowed forward wings would go. And they would only be sent to the Midland posts as reinforcements, never to the front. Nowadays, as we learn in this next set of chapters here... They are frequently called to Midland posts where its riders are needed at the front for an emergency. That's more proof that there are more attacks on these border outposts, therefore more emergencies. Therefore, the third years are getting called in more to man the Midland posts, which we learn all of this from when Mira asked Second Squad if third years are called out. Now, it's really important to note that Dane absolutely freaked out and did not believe this news. So that must mean that this is not common knowledge, even among squads, that they're going out to these Midland Posts so often. thought that was interesting.
0: I'm, I'm like, I'm absorbing this like Spongebob Squarepants. Like I am like, this <laughs> is. This, I was today years old when I learned that Navarre
1: was fighting against poor Emil. Like I was two years old. So this yes. is so exciting. <laughs> this just points to how there are so many secrets about how bad things really are. And therefore, leadership at Veskaya is, or even professors or wing leaders at this rate, are not preparing these writers for what's truly out there and teaching them how bad things really are. Really just represents bad management. They care more about things appearing good than their actual citizens, which is what sparked the Tirish Rebellion six years ago. The big question here, why is Pormil raiding these Navarian villages and attacking the outposts? We're going to have to do some serious speculation here. Let's start with what the Navarians believe, which I'm going to guess is a tiny bit of truth, but mostly propaganda to mask the bigger reason they're often under attack. Pormules are, to quote Violet again, greedy assholes who are never content with the resources they have. There are trade agreements in place to prevent these sorts of raids, but because Pormule refuses to abide by them, there's just no peace in sight. So that is why there's this never-ending war is because, according to Navarre, poor Emil is not happy enough with the resources they have from the trade agreements, and that's why they're always going in and wanting more and more and more. They never stop attacking Navarre. They're illegally and violently taking their resources. And this right here is the reason Navarre enlists, trains, and deploys its military. So what are these trade agreements that are supposed to facilitate peace between the two kingdoms? We know of one in particular, which was signed 200 years ago the trade agreement of recent it ensures the exchange of meat and lumber from navarre for the cloth and agriculture within poor meal four times a year at the athbane outpost <laughs> athbane again sure does keep popping up uh, we do learn about a few other ones i do want to point out one notably navarre has a lot of ore which as i understand can be made for weapons so good thing to know there okay now that we know kind of the propaganda fuel here Let's hypothesize why Poromil is actually raiding the Navarian villages and attacking the outposts.
0: I have a quick question. So Griffins are from Poromil, yes? Yes. Yes. Okay. So... We have yet to meet... I mean, we've met a few Griffins, but like other than the Griffin Riders that we meet at the end, we haven't
1: met anyone from Poromiel. Yes. The city that they save at the end, I believe, is Poromiel because they were saying that you have to save the enemy, and so they do go and technically save the enemy. And the Griffin Riders were all about saving them. They were going to be in there first. So I do believe that we didn't necessarily meet them, but they were saving Poromiel's citizens. Okay,
0: Thank God for these archive sections because... I feel like I'm learning this book all over again whenever you do these. Like, you guys, are- major props to Lexi. You have no idea how much work she puts into these sections. Like, they are incredibly heavy search. I, I'm, I'm blown away by you and your, your ebook skills.
1: I love it. I love it. It's it's so much fun. It's just like putting a puzzle piece together. Reasons why Pormiel could be raiding Navarian villages, specifically high altitude ones, more frequently right now. First and foremost, Venin are destroying their cities. We can guess Pormiel has known about the threat of Venin for centuries, and Navar's refusal to help them and stay holed up in their warded kingdom is a driving reason for these attacks. So remember, about 600 years ago, these two kingdoms were not at war. And my understanding, again, my understanding here, is that the Navarians started bonding with dragons. They discovered that their wards could protect them against the venom, and they just shielded themselves up and said, okay, Pormil, peace out. Good luck with your griffins. We're all set here with the dragons. And that's why they've been at war now for so many centuries. That blows. These griffin flyers, they are looking for something when they raid these areas. Is it resources because the Venen are sucking up theirs? Is it something to protect them against the Venen, whether it is, you know, weapons or a certain material, the crystallized gems that may be hidden away in the mountains and poor wants them to strengthen their magic? I see you nodding your head. Uh Uh, Does it have anything to do with this mysterious box that the Venen wanted so badly? We don't know the answers, but I really do believe that these raiding parties, they are more to protect themselves Versus just out for attacking Navarians like the propaganda has led them to believe since Venin are a gigantic secret. It's showing them the shiny object. It's distracting them. From learning the real truth about why Poor Meal is desperately needing assistance and help.
0: Remind me, remind me this
1: box of the the venom we're after. When when does that happen in the book? Why am I totally forgetting this? It's in the very final battle where it's like in the clock tower and like the primary venom. Like I believe it was like the man with the staff, and yeah. he was just like out to get it. And so the dragon's <gasps> magic was like attracted to it as well. So they knew there was something that the venom were searching for. I'd have to reread it with a with a fine comb, but I can't remember exactly what happened to the box. I don't think that the Venom got it. Violet passed out before anything with that happened. We, we also keep
0: in mind that we have not done fantasy fangirls fine tooth comb of that those chapters yet. So please, please keep in mind that we might be forgetting things there. Lexi, that was insane.
1: <laughs> I really do hope that that clears it up for some people because it definitely was helpful for me of just gaining this understanding and really being able to understand the difference between what we can assume or hypothesize what's going on Versus the propaganda that Navarre has been feeding them. Shall we
0: close out this episode with taking flight
1: with our favorite
0: moments there's so many so
1: we just got to kick it off everything about Liam I love Liam we only have so much page time with him so I'm just gonna milk it for all it's worth he fixes Vice squeaky wheel he's a shameless but polite flirt he kills you with kindness like he's just so sweet
0: I love the moment where Violet and Rhiannon are looking at Z- Zayden and Garrick sparring he's like stop objectifying our wing leader <laughs> Just kills me. And then also when he, meaning Zayden, sticks me with a shadow, no matter how great that
1: he is. And, and Liam just goes, I appreciate that. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, see, he's just proving my point. <laughs> I love him. And then he had started channeling, but he was pretending not to because of Violet. Like, what a big moment. And he like couldn't tell anybody yet. I
0: love that they're stuffing a guard into a uh, office. She's like pouring a vial down his throat. And he's like, you're kind
1: of terrifying. And she goes, thank you. <laughs> See, that's the Ravenclaw on our girl right there. So then there's this scene with Ree, Violet, and Liam where they're talking about their sexual frustrations and Riddick just coming in hot with, oh, are we telling dick jokes now? And I love
0: that Zayden, like because of his shadows, he's probably overhearing every single one of these moments of Violet being sexually frustrated. I just love the idea of him sitting in the back and being like, I'm so distracted right now. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Favorite Taryn lines. Violet says, don't you have better things to do with your day than listen to my self-loathing? And Taryn goes, not particularly. (laughs) Violet literally, when she's drooling over Zayden and gets whacked by Bree and her like giant staff, Taryn says, serves you right. (laughs) But I also love that Violet is like, man, I really need to get laid. I have a question. Is there no masturbating here at Bez Gaius? Look, I understand that it's different. And I understand that multiple times she's like, yeah, it's not the like passionate sex or whatever. It's like the the connection with someone. And I do understand that. But she needs to let out an orgasm or two. Is there no masturbating at Bez Gaius? Like, come I'm on. I'm telling you, she has to meet Nesta
1: for <laughs> <laughs> Learn a thing or two from her. My gosh,
0: I do love also that weed is canon in this world, like that just makes me so happy. I'm and I'm not a big weed user or anything, but just the fact that, like, that's just canon (laughs) just makes me so happy. Oh my god.
1: (laughs) Like when when we became legal here and our uncle who lived in the South came and he was so excited and like he was trying to like take pictures and they had to tell him to put his phone (laughs) (laughs) with me. Then also just a Zayden line, you know, unless you're here to continue our earlier argument, in which case, none for you. So often on
0: this podcast, we talk about show, don't tell. And this is one of my favorite moments when Violet wakes up after, you know, using oranges as a weapon. She sees Zayden and it's described as his hair is tousled like he's been tugging at it. And just like that moment of how distressed he's been over Violet, just like... (sighs) i love it i love it so much satan says disarm me before i test that theory in front of everyone at this gym and violet says interesting i didn't take you for an exhibitionist and finally to close out today's
1: mega episode if you're watching this on youtube you can see the lighting has changed because this has been like an all-day process you can also see just the light has left our eyes We've become shells of human beings Riddick putting his hand up to be leader for the squad battle and just immediately puts his hand down. And like later on he's like, you know, we could steal Panjik's underwear. That's why we don't let you leave. Again, Riddick is just the best. <laughs> Except behind Lima. I love Liam first and then Reddick. I might have them side by side. Like, I love comedic
0: relief characters so much that I might actually have them side by side. Oh, Friends, man.
1: we did it. That is episode five. So if you're not already, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Fantasy Fangirls Pod. The main party is on TikTok, but the behind-the-scenes fun is on Instagram Stories. And also email us your theories, thoughts, questions at Fantasy Fangirls Pod at gmail.com. Please take a moment and whatever
0: podcasting platform you are listening on, rate and review and subscribe to the show. We have just learned this morning, it is the 29th of September when we're recording this, we learned that we were ranked number 150 in all of podcasts in
1: Australia. Shout out to our Aussies. You guys
0: are amazing. I'm
1: blown away right now. I love Australia already because of Bluey, and this just made me love you all
0: even more. So please, 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 whatever you are listening on, take a moment, rate, review the show. It really means so much to help us. We can't say anything right now, but we've got some really, really cool things coming up, and those ratings and reviews really help us continue that on as we grow this show. And also most importantly though, share with your fellow fourth wing friends. You guys, this audience, we are blown away by how much it is growing. And that is truly because you all keep sharing it with more and more and more people. And we are for ever grateful for you. Thank you. Keep it up. It is so helpful. And Lexi and I are just quite literally freaking out behind the scenes. Like I'll just be honest (laughs) in a good way. Sweet, wonderful friends. We've had a blast with you today. We will see you in episode six, where we will be covering chapters 26 through 30. We love you all so much. Bye.